Hey everyone, this episode we're talking about 1999's Galaxy Quest. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, this discussion probably won't make that much sense, so we do recommend you watch that before listening. So John, what is Galaxy Quest about? Well Mike, Galaxy Quest is one of the all-time great psychological thrillers. In this movie, we embark with the crew of a canceled TV show as they gradually lose their grip on sanity and reality in the midst of a shared psychosis developed to distract them from the bitter reality of their failed, miserable lives. Sam Rockwell gives an Oscar-worthy performance of an actor so lost in the delusion that he forgets his own name and fades into his tragically unimportant character's arc. Galaxy Quest is a brutal, chilling descent into madness that just can't be missed. You know what I like about that, John? Yeah, what's up? That you made Sam Rockwell the main character. That's my favorite part. I, I, I assumed you would appreciate that. Because in a sense, uh, you can make the argument. Uh, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Hey guys, once again, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the films that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I am joined, as always, by Mike Overstreet. Hello! And like we said, this week we're talking about Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest was a 1999 sci-fi comedy. Uh, the Wikipedia summary says it depicts the cast of a fictional defunct cult television series, Galaxy Quest, who are visited by actual aliens who think the series is an accurate documentary and drawn into a very real interstellar conflict. Ooh. The movie was directed by Dean Parisot, Pariseau, written by David Howard and Robert Gordon, and it stars Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, Sam Rockwell, and Daryl Mitchell. Uh, before we kind of start talking about the movie, I, I like finding quotes, as maybe you've noticed, Mike, yeah. that I think set up really interesting thoughts about the movie. Uh, Sir Patrick Stewart played Captain Jean-Luc Picard on the legendary Star Trek The Next Generation show, uh, which Galaxy Quest largely sort of uses as the source for its parody and its humor. And in 2002, uh, he said this, I had originally not wanted to see Galaxy Quest because I heard that it was making fun of Star Trek. And then Jonathan Frakes, uh, another cast member of uh, Star Trek, and then Jonathan Frakes rigged me up and said, you must not miss this movie. See it on a Saturday night in a full theater. And I did, and of course I found it was brilliant, brilliant. No one laughed louder or longer in the cinema than I did, but the idea that the ship was saved and all of our heroes in that movie were saved simply by the fact that there were fans who did understand the scientific principles on which the ship worked was absolutely wonderful. And it was both funny and also touching in that it paid tribute to the dedication of these fans, which is about as good a review as I think you can get for a movie like this, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. Can I read, uh, can I read two quotes? Because I think they're funny. You in can. Tandem. Yeah. The first is from George Takai. He said, I think it's a chillingly realistic documentary that the details <laughs> in it. I recognize every one of them. It is a powerful piece of documentary filmmaking. 
And I do believe that when we get kidnapped by aliens, it's going to be the genuine, true Star Trek fans who save the day. I was rolling in the aisles, and Tim Allen had that Shatner-esque swagger down pat, and I <laughs> roared when the shirt came off, and Sigourney Weaver rolled her eyes and says, there goes that shirt again. How often do we hear that on set? And I want to pair that with what William Shatner said, which is, <laughs> I thought it was very funny, and I thought the audience that they portrayed was totally real, but the actors that they were pretending to be were totally unrecognizable. Certainly, I don't know what Tim Allen was doing. He seemed to be the head of a group of actors, and for the life of me, I was trying to understand who he was or imitating. <laughs> That's actually the best thing I've ever heard. I had the Takai quote for later. I did not have that Shatner quote. Isn't that, aren't those great that's, in tandem? <laughs> it's just so good. That's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. Uh, well, we start by talking about our history with this movie. Mike, I'm kind of curious about, first of all, your history with Galaxy Quest, obviously, but also if you have any past with Star Trek, which again, this, is, this movie is a very clear parody slash homage of uh, Star Trek. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, it's ac it's really interesting. I don't recall seeing this in theaters, and it was it was interesting when I was looking at like the box office notes for this because it is one of the few movies that did better after its opening weekend, and a lot of that yeah. comes back to the fact that DreamWorks was like really confused by what it was and ultimately failed to promote it. So it was definitely a word of mouth movie, and I I feel like that's my history with it. So, uh, I my dad is a huge Trekkie and I, I don't know if I knew that. Specifically. Yeah. Oh, he loves it. My brother does too. And I never caught that bug, but he loved this movie. I remember him coming home and being like, I need to show my, the, the kids this. Right. And we'd end up, we watched it all the freaking time and I adored it. I mean, I remember shouting like never give up, never surrender, maybe more than any other movie line ever as a child. It was just one of those lines that I thought was the funniest thing on earth. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of my history with it. Um, it is it is a movie that I forget more than almost any other classic. We talked about this with The Truman Show, where it's one of those movies that I come back to often. And I just every time I watch it, I'm like, this is one of the funniest movies of all time. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I just never think about it. Um, so I had not seen it since college this time, over a decade at this point. And man, rewatching it for this, I'm like, why did I, why have I waited so long to come back to this movie? Because it's so, so funny. How about you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, a very, very similar place. I, uh, my family really did like Star Trek The Next Generation. I wouldn't call anyone in my family Trekkies specifically. Because uh, I don't think they got too much into the lore and they didn't, you know, go back to watch all of the different uh, original series and all of those movies and whatever. But the next generation had like a pretty big cultural moment there, um, kind of during the first part of the 90s and then continuing into reruns. So I remember that was on constantly because it was just a fun show to watch. Uh, but it did give me that that exposure did, I think, give us like the proper space to really really appreciate galaxy quest because i think a lot like you this became a staple in our house i remember uh for some reason for comedies this and zoolander were our go-to mm, um that's funny. that we would just it's, it's a great duo and so i remember this was one of those movies that that we could just put on 
and, and everyone was there and everyone loved watching it. Like you too, and, and Mike and I had talked about this before the, the recording, but this is also for me, one of those movies that I do forget about. And whenever I rethink of it or rewatch it or whatever, I suddenly think that it, this is just nearly a perfect movie. This is genuinely one of my favorite movies of all time. I don't know if I would say it's necessarily one of the best. There will be a couple nitpicks I have later. Sure. But just in terms of my like relationship with it and my appreciation of it, this is, this is like a Desert Island movie, right? Yeah. You'd want this. I would want to watch this for the rest of my life if I could only watch a handful of movies. Uh, it's so it, it's so funny. It also has a lot of heart. And it even has kind of, as well, and we're going to talk about this a lot later, but it even actually has many elements of what makes Star Trek great in the first place. Uh, which I don't want to go too much into because we're going to talk about that more. Anything else with history and your past with the film? Anything like that? No, I'm ready. Awesome. Well, the way we divide this podcast, we have basically a few different sections of how we're going to talk about or what we're going to talk about. We're going to start by talking about what works in this movie, the things that make this movie work. Then we'll talk about maybe the things that hold it back a little bit. We have stray thoughts, which Mike and I just go back and forth with uh, little quick thoughts. And then finally, in the second half of the episode, we have some essays we've prepared. But we're just going to start with what makes this movie work. And similar to the Monty Python episode, uh, I think we're going to try to kind of con do all of the talking about the humor of the movie in one little mini section here. Because otherwise, this does badly risk us devolving into quoting the movie at each other yeah. For, yeah. Uh, yeah. for two hours. Which sounds fun, but I'm assuming wouldn't make the best listening experience. Uh, but I guess just, just to launch into that, to start with why this movie works, and if you have seen it, hopefully you will agree, this is one of the funniest movies I think ever made. This is a hysterical movie. It, it, it is doing all this stuff with parody and with the genre, but even on its own, even if you don't know that much or understand that much about Star Trek, it's still really funny. Mike and I have each tried to kind of collect a few of our favorite jokes and our favorite bits from the movie. And we'll just go back and forth for a second. Um, hopefully not taking too much time, but we'll just go back and forth. I'm going to start with Sam Rockwell, who we're going to talk about more <laughs> later, but his character guy uh, in the, in the context of the movie is, was a, a extra on the set of the show. Uh, or I think even on only one episode, I think, but he manages to, manages to tag along with them on the space adventure. The scene I want to call out is when they're going down to the alien yes. planet to get the yes. Berlin Sphere. Yes. And he suddenly has a crisis because he realizes that he's the expendable crew member on a mission to the planet. And he says, I want to go home. I want to go home. You're not going to die on the planet, guy. I'm not? What's my last name? It's, uh, um, uh... Nobody knows! You know why? Because my character isn't important enough for a last name. Because I'm gonna die five minutes in. Guy, you have a last name. Do I? Do I? Yes. For all you know, I'm just crewman number six. Bobby! 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 Do I? <laughs> Do I? And then he starts crying. It is metatextual in the best way. It is comedic in the best way. It's one of my favorite jokes and sequences in any movie ever. 
that guy can't, doesn't know his own last name and is using that as a reason why he believes he's going to die as the expendable oh, crew member man. on this planet. Yeah. What a what of like five minutes or whatever it is i can yeah. watch that on repeat forever what's the other the other great quote from him is when they're looking at the little baby aliens and he says any second now they're going <laughs> to get mean they're going to do something terrible and there's going to be a million more of them and they're like no there won't and he says did any of you ever even watch the show <laughs> i love that it's so i love good. that <laughs> And, and it's better because he's right, right? Yeah, yeah. When they do yep. turn evil and you're like, yeah, man, he, he actually is the only one who knows what the show is like. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. What do you got? I think the first one, <laughs> the first one that I always, I always remember this scene and it, it kills me every time, um, is the scene where uh, the <laughs> Tim Allen goes on the ship and orders that they shoot Saurus mid-speech <laughs> and just watching the, the facial like the facial movements of the the aliens that he's the there to protect yeah. is so funny because he's just like fire all the torpedoes whatever and they're all like what uh, what are you doing like it's just so funny watching their response it's great <laughs> well and it is better too because the character uh uh jason is, is hung over too he's got the sunglasses on and he's yep. kind of out of it yep and in the middle of the speech he's like yeah, yeah, yeah okay okay i get it we'll just do and obviously it's a life or death situation for for them yeah it's incredible yeah um i'm gonna i'm just we're just gonna roll through because frankly there's a lot of these so i'm just gonna keep moving uh gwen which is sigourney weaver's character uh in the show all the character does is um talk to the <laughs> ship talk to the computer and so in the movie, or once they're on the real ship, they can't talk to the computer. They have to have her talk to the computer and then repeat what the computer says back to them. Oh, and in one scene in the conference room, she's having to keep doing this as they're dissecting the current problem. And uh, Tommy Loretto, one of the, the, the pilot characters, says, that's really annoying. And she says, look, I have one job on this lousy ship. It's stupid, but I'm going to do it, okay? And then he backs off. That's just great. And again, it's lampooning an amazing, weird trope in the original series. It's so fantastic. What yep. do you got? Uh, I wrote, I chortle, so you can know how hard I laugh at this. But I chortle every time I watch the teleportation scene when they <laughs> return the hog and it's inside out. I just wrote down this back and forth. What? What was that? Uh, nothing. I heard some squealing or something. Oh, no, everything's fine. But the animal is inside out. I heard that. It turned inside out? And it exploded. Did I just hear that that animal turned inside out and then it exploded? Hello? Hold, please. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> It's like it's the an perfect, incredible moment. It's the perfect dry humor. And obviously they give a ton of that to Tony Shalhoub because he's so good at like the dry one-liners. But it is like the perfect, it's the, the epitome of the how well this movie does just like dry dialogue that when you actually sit with it is so freaking funny. It's so absurd. It's, Hold, and please. that, by the way, that whole scene too is deeply horrifying and maybe yes. like internally decide to just never ever use a transporter oh, i don't know if we're living that reason. long mike okay yeah but that's a compelling reason it, that that was deeply unsettling but extremely funny speaking of tony shalhoub you just mentioned him my next one was 
the the best in, I think the best inside joke of the movie. So this is never a joke in the context of the movie. But if you know Star Trek and especially the original series, you know that the engineer character is essentially always this really, really like aggressive, red faced, loud. You know, it's Scotty. It's it's the yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to do the accent, but you know, everything is over the top. The fact that Tony Shalhoub's engineer character is so the opposite of that in every possible way. The entire movie, and I think Sam Rockwell even asked him at one point, are you high right now? Yeah. Because the yeah. whole movie, he's just kind of, yeah, guys, whatever. There's the My favorite scene is when he tells them that they found a new spot for the beryllium sphere, and they say, oh, that's great. And then he turns around to his crew and he says, that was right again, guys. Here, bring it in. Group hug, group hug. And they all do a little group hug. Yeah, that right. character and his moments in the movie are just incredible to me. When he, in the same scene, he says, they're telling me that the generator can't take it and the ship is falling apart. And then he pauses and goes, just FYI. And in the background, there's a guy like flying yes. from the generator exploding, but he's just kind of standing there. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, what do you got? Uh, I I wrote down two quotes from pretty much every time that they try to explain television to the Thermians is hilarious. Um, yeah. So the first I wrote down, and this one also makes me laugh out loud every time I see this movie, Sigourney Weaver's character is like, they're not all historical documents. Surely you don't think Gilligan's Island, and then they pause and they go, <laughs> those poor people. And it's just like <laughs> they such look so well sad. But then I also love, oh, man. I also love what she's trying to explain what television is. And <laughs> the Thermian says, you're speaking of deception, lies. We've only recently become aware of this concept through our dealings with Saurus. Often he will say one thing, but do another. Promise us mercy and then do the opposite. It is an idea that we are beginning to learn through great costs. But if you're saying that any of you have traits in common with Saurus, <laughs> ha 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 ha, he starts doing that funny laugh. That I just awful, love weird it. laugh. I just love it. It's so funny. Actually, in general, my next one is just the Thermians. So the Thermians yeah. are those alien species that have, that have believed ga that Galaxy Quest was a real show and try to construct their whole society around it. Uh, they are so uncanny in every possible way. Uh, my favorite details are the way that they run. I don't yeah. know if you remember, but they, keep, they put their hands uh, palm down in front of them and sort of rotate the or like alternate them going up and down as they lift their legs really high. Uh, it's incredible. The way that they laugh, the way that they are, all their movements are jerky. Uh, I just love all of those characters. Uh, they are incredibly funny. So this was, I was going to save this for stray thoughts, but um, yeah, I love their, I love their sincerity. And uh, yeah. one of the, the little tidbits I found researching this movie is that the, the scriptwriters base their behavior off of uh, an idea that is just this statement: "Happy Jehovah's Witnesses." <laughs> uh, man, that's like perfect. Isn't that it? makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, man. Uh, let me see. I have a couple more. I'll just go through them real quick because they're yeah. just quotes at this point. I have uh, when they're rolling the beryllium sphere away and they're afraid of the little the little alien monsters are starting to come up against them. Gwen actually shouts, let's get out of here before one of those things kills Guy. I just thought that was a great <laughs> That's line. Great. Yeah. I just really, really appreciate that. And then finally, oh, excuse me, I have two more. Um, 
God, when Tony Shalhoub's character, Guy's about to make this huge heroic sacrifice, and he says, "I'm expendable. I'm the crewman. I don't have a last name. I'm just going to go in there and, uh, you know, I'm I'm doomed anyways." And uh, Tony Shalhoub stops him. He's like, "Guy, guy, guy, maybe you're the plucky comic relief. Did you ever think of that?" I just love that line yeah, a lot. I just so I good. think that was the first time I even had an understanding of what comic relief was. I just think it's perfect. And then finally, my last one, and, and I think just an incredible sequence in the movie when Gwen. So so when uh, Gwen and Jason are going to turn off the reactor, and they come upon the chompers, yes. which are these yes. in the middle of a hallway, these arbitrary things that are just like like obstacles that they have to go through and Gwen is like why do we have to do this and Jason is like it was in the show someone put it in the show so they put it here and for the moment she basically just collapses what is this thing I mean there's no useful purpose for there to be a bunch of choppy crushy things in the middle of a hallway no I think we shouldn't have to do this it makes no logical sense why is this here because it's on the television well, show forget it Okay, Again, it's it's lampshading those ridiculous plot points in those original in the original show, but also making our characters actually go through it. I just think it's hysterical. It's great. Uh, what do you yeah. got? I, I just blew through all of mine, so you could just you could just take the wheel. Well, I love the the quote from Jason when he's trying to describe the Thermians. He says they were like termites or Dalmatians. I can't really remember because <laughs> I was hungover. <laughs> That's just a great line. <laughs> Um, yeah. I am super here for how committed they are to dragging out the ship, scraping along the side of the space station <laughs> as they first leave. It is like it's the always perfect length of time. to the right, more to the right. Would you sit, sit your ass down? <laughs> sit, move. You want to drive this thing? little bit longer than you think it is because yep. i remember that scene but the scraping sound lasts so long and yeah. you're like ooh, and it's so uncomfortable it's amazing yeah and then the i had just two small points like i love when they're at the audio the uh, autograph booth and everyone's like hoarding around the main characters and tony shalhoub's at the end of the table just sitting quietly by himself <laughs> I, I actually never noticed that i got a kick out of that and then I, I love when the uh, the scene where the Thermians meet the crew and they introduce each character and they all like whisper their name in unison and then it gets to Sam Rockwell and they'll go they'll go mm, guy <laughs> that's it and the, well and the music swells when it goes to <laughs> yes. his face like it's this huge dramatic reveal and they're and they're just like they have no idea who he is mm, uh, guy I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I did neglect one, which is actually maybe the funniest scene, so I'm sad that neither of us hit it. But when they're in... So when the crew is having to do the opening for that tech store, and they're all reading the little lines, and it gets down to Alan Rickman's character... Oh, I had this who later, yeah. who, yep. Okay, who has to uh, say this line that he's come to hate in the context of the show, but there he has to... He, and he doesn't want to say it for a second, and someone nudges him. He says, by Grabthar's hammer, what a saving. <laughs> so and there good. is so much disgust and detestment. And Alan Rickman, that's what we're going to get to him a little bit later because there's a lot with his character in this movie. But he conveys so much hatred in that yes. line reading. Yep. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yep, it's it's amazing. I had that down. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, do you have anything else for for the humor of this movie? Things we want to call out for that? No, I mean it's just a great balance. I just it, it, just it a, hits yeah. everything. Slapstick, dry humor, uh, like you said, kind of like this existential playing with the genre humor. It just does it all. It's great. Well, and and if we're gonna so we can segue a little bit now into just kind of more generally what makes this movie work obviously it's an incredibly funny movie but all of these elements are really good and i mean the first one should be pretty obvious by this point but this movie deeply understands the source material that it's aping um it's not and i talk or what i wrote down is the way that this movie is more of an homage than a parody yeah we actually i want us to hold that thought though because my essay is about that so we're going to get to that more in depth later but just to note it real quick and why this movie works the movie understands the star trek source material very deeply and is constantly referencing it in all these clever little ways again we'll get more to that later uh the first big one i have that i want to talk about with you this is maybe one of the most overqualified casts of yeah. any movie ever yeah. uh I, I mentioned these names earlier, but let's just kind of go down the list if you're okay with that. Yeah, so to start go. with, we have Tim Allen, who's portraying this slimy Hollywood guy with a heart of gold. He's, he's I think, kind of, he's obviously doing a Shatner sort of thing. He's also, I think, kind of playing the Tim Allen kind of character. If you think about movies like The Santa Claus, or if you think about Home Improvement to an extent, where it's like on the surface, he's he's kind of, like I say, he's kind of slimy. He's kind of, you know, maybe not the greatest guy. But beneath all of that, he's got redeeming qualities. And once he gets past that selfishness, he becomes a good character. It's funny. In a sense, he's not my favorite person in this movie. But I think he executes the role really, really, really well. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, the original director actually backed out when they cast him for this. He did not want him at all. And, I didn't know that. And he later apologized because he thought he was perfect in it. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine being in this time and thinking about him in this role. But in hindsight, you're like, this is definitely one of those movies where I can't imagine anyone else doing this as well as he does. He is the perfect yeah. level of charming, but also just a gigantic dickhead. I love yeah. that his first line of the movie is him showing up two hours late to the gig. And he says, am I too late <laughs> for Alex's panic attack? It just, like, <laughs> captures the fact that this guy is, like, he's just the worst. He would be the worst person yeah. to work with. And uh, it sets him up for quite the journey uh, in terms of character development over the film. But, yeah, I can't imagine this movie without him. 
Which I didn't think about. In a certain sense, he has the biggest arc of the movie, I guess. Oh, yeah. That yeah. He, he has to go through. It's kind of a Scrooge story. He has to go from this you know, bad place to this place where he's accepting of, of everyone else's hard work, where he's less selfish. And he, he sells it. And it's great. He does a good job. I wouldn't go so far as to say I couldn't imagine anyone better in this. Just because the, the, the one thing that still holds it back is I, I kind of think that he doesn't quite portray the original uh, captains that he's aping that well. Like, sure. I wouldn't think it would work in reverse. Almost every other character, I think, could have been in the original Star Trek series, and it probably would have worked. I don't think that works for him. I don't think he would have been a captain on a Star Trek show, which yeah. is kind of a nitpick, but, you know, that's the only small thing. Sure. Uh, otherwise, I think he's great. Uh, there's two people I really want to talk about, but first I'm going to talk about one other person, which is Sigourney Weaver. Oh, Among yeah. other things, she brings, like, this super high sci-fi pedigree. <laughs> I mean, this is this is Alien and Aliens. And this is a lot of history. Oh, I guess Ghostbusters, too. This is just someone who is very much a titan of this genre. So in a way, I think she almost brings gravitas to it. But she's also demonstrating an incredible sense of humor. Like, yes. her comedic timing is perfect in this movie. Yep. And I don't know if she had gotten a chance to flex that so much before. Uh, and it's a perfect ape of that origin of those kinds of characters from those original series. Uh, I just think she does an amazing job. I don't know. I don't have much else to say. Yeah, well, and it's, it's funny because we're going to get into this with what doesn't work, maybe, which is I'm always a little unsure what to do when people uh, parody, like, misogyny and stuff. Yeah. That being said, she was apparently the one who, like, really wanted or pushed for things like her breasts to be out, like, half the movie. And, like, she really was trying to, like, be a parody of this genre. And it... Yeah. And in so many ways, you see, like you were just saying, you see her comedic chops where she both understands the genre, because like you said, she's a titan of it. But she also understands what to poke fun of and how to how to both like wink at it in a positive way at times, but also to highlight just how brutally broken it was, especially like in its treatment of women and stuff like that. And I think there's yeah, a way that absolutely. you can do that that make that demeans these movies or takes them out of context and then judges them in the modern era. And she is not trying to do that. I think she is very good-heartedly trying to poke fun at it while still acknowledging that there is deeply problematic stuff uh, when these things were made in the 70s, 60s, 80s, you know. But yeah, no, I mean, Absolutely. I, I, I guess Ghostbusters is the closest thing I can remember to her being in a comedy of any kind. And that's not even a full-blown, I mean, it's a comedy, but it's also a more serious comedy than you would think. And this well, is and she's also more... not a funny character in that movie. I exactly. mean, she has funny. Yeah. She's part of funny scenes, but she herself is pretty straight in the movie. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a blast watching Ellen Ripley just like crack jokes with perfect timing. I completely agree. <laughs> uh, just to go back real quick, I, I wanted to mention with the Tim Allen thing. I forgot your quote with from William Shatner is just incredible in light of that. Yes. I just wanted to call that out it's one more so time. Good. The it's idea so that he watched Tim Allen in that movie was like, I have no idea who that was supposed to be. I just love that. I like that we live in that world, Mike. It is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the brightest timeline. Uh, I only have two more actors I want to talk about, but I have quite a lot to say about both of them. The first is, is Alan Rickman. Yes. Alan Rickman is in this movie. He's a and, god. And just on its own, that's already an incredible sentence, but... 
he's doing so, so Rickman is is playing so obviously he's tra- he's portraying the Spock slash Leonard Nimoy uh, character and Leonard Nimoy famously had this whole journey where he actually really hated the Spock character for an extremely long time towards later in his life he came back around but he has to do actually quite a lot of stuff in this movie Alan Rickman he has to be incredibly funny as he sort of lampoons both acting and this character because on the one yes. hand I think he's a joke at the expense of very serious actors because he is the serious actor the Shakespearean all of this different stuff I think at the beginning they're talking about three curtain calls when he did Richard the third and he's yeah, yeah, you know yeah. remembering that um, so on the one hand he has to sort of lampoon that actorly presence he's also lampooning this kind of character in these movies who is the science nerd who is logical who is the right-hand man, but never quite gets the glory in the way that the captain does. I think what's cool about the character in the movie, though, is he also has real emotional beats. I think I I texted this to Mike last week, but there's a scene near the end of the movie where he has to give the Graptar's hammer line, but sincerely, because there's a person who's dying who uh, actually connected quite a lot with the line. He, Alan Rickman sells that so well basically and if you think about the layers he's doing he's he's selling that this guy who hates this line that that has become part of his character it has unfortunately become part of his life has to go through this thing of recognizing the power it has for someone else in delivering it straight to them and it's actually an incredibly I don't know. It's a very nuanced emotional scene, I think. I, I think you're going to talk about that a little bit in your essay later, right, Mike? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's okay, a powerful okay. scene. I think it's really, really well done. And, yeah, and you have to you have to be able to understand that he's swallowing his ego to give this, some, this, this dying person what they need. And, yeah, you only, you only find it as emotionally moving as it is because he's sold that his character has gone on a journey. And that's yeah. that's all performance. It's all the performance that led before that moment and how he delivers the line. So yeah, absolutely. That scene. I just wrote I literally wrote out that scene and said, I mean Jesus Christ, John. Yeah. It's, it's like, incredible. It's, it's good. And yeah. and going back to what we were saying earlier, in the same movie, he has to sell the Graptar's hammer line when they're at the auction, right? Yeah. Which is the the height the, the funniest one of the funniest moments of the movie. He has to do it with so much detestment. But then he has to sell literally the same words, but in the exact opposite context, where yeah. they're the most moving, I would say the most moving moment of the whole movie. Yeah. That's really hard. And yeah. he does it perfectly. Yeah. And it's then a he, crazy good performance. Yeah. And he, and he also, like everyone else, nails his comedic lines. I mean, like when they're eating dinner and he says, just like mother, <laughs> just like mother used to make about the bowl of, you know, insects or ticks, I think they say they are. Um, yeah. Or even like... I don't mean to keep going back through old lines, but even when Jason gets captured on the evil planet, the baby planet, and he says, oh, right, because it's always about you, isn't it? Like, he delivers those lines perfectly on a comedic level. So he's yeah. doing so much in this movie, which I don't mean to keep belaboring that point, but it, it's rare to see someone hit the the, com- the comedic side, the, like you said, the parodying of his own probably views on acting like he's lampooning himself in terms of like mocking acting and then at the same time to so effortlessly switch into an emotional scene it's a very holistic performance yeah 
it's perfect. Uh, he does, and it reminds me a little bit. Rickman in general, uh, you know, often was playing a little bit beneath what you feel like he's capable of. Going all a the way back to bit? his breakout in Die Hard, a where it's bit? like, <laughs> I just love that he often was this guy who was just insanely overqualified coming Absolutely. in for these and making these smaller parts. Not that this is a small part, but it's not the biggest part of the movie. But he's bringing so much to that. And he does that again and again and again and makes these relatively possibly forgettable characters into kind of the highlights of their movies. Yeah, It's just incredible. Um, speaking of bringing quite a lot to a small part, the last person I wanted to talk about, we can talk about other people if you want, but the last person I wrote down to talk about, uh, we already mentioned him, but Sam Rockwell in this movie, uh. Uh, this, this was kind of his breakout, I think, or one of his earliest roles, I think, certainly. Uh, and like we said, he's, he's portraying this character who gets brought along kind of by accident because he wasn't one of the main cast members. He was an expendable crewmate number 46, I think he says, or something like that. Yeah. And he suddenly is on the real thing and is immediately just, for most of the movie, is just scared to death that he's going to get killed, uh, which sounds a little simple, but it's one of the funniest character creations I've ever seen. It's because great. his reasoning for why he's going to be killed is that he was such an unimportant character on the show, and now the show has come to life. Yeah. And he uses that over and over again as a reason for why I'm expendable, I'm going to die. And he just sells the hell out of it. Like, you, you really buy that that character is going through that immense existential crisis, and it's all played for laughs, and it's all perfect. Mike, you've been a Sam... You've had a lot of Sam Rockwell stock probably your whole life. Yes. Uh, was this where that started, I guess, is, is my first question for you. Um, well, I am the leader of the Sam Rockwell fan club, and I always have been, and I always will be. Yeah. I am the alpha and the omega of Sam Rockwell stock. Um, yeah, I don't... If you guys want to join, you can just send an email, mike at samrockwellfans. Uh, That's right. Dot com. That's right. Yeah. Um, we have t-shirts. It's great. Uh, I, I actually, I don't know when it started. Um, I know I became obsessed with him during when Moon came out. Like, I love the movie Moon. Yeah. And Man, we got to do Moon at some point. Yeah, but I also, like, as a teenager, loved Matchstick Men, which was a, a probably not very well-seen <laughs> um, heist movie that I, I, I don't really think enjoy. it's aged well, I think, is its biggest Yeah, I, yeah. I, I haven't seen it in a while, but I just feel like a lot. it's probably not as good as it was. But I, yeah. I liked that movie, too. Yeah, yeah so, and then, you know, I... So I, I think it was probably Moon was when I, like, seriously got into him. Um, I mean, I even remember watching this super depressing movie, Snow Angels, in, like, 2007 that no one saw and just being... I only went to see it because of Sam Rockwell. Um, but... So I don't know when it started, but I do know that every time I watch this movie, he is someone that uh, I think of fondly. And I always am like, man, Sam Rockwell is probably one of the most underrated actors across genres that we have today. And obviously, I, I completely agree with you. Every single existential crisis he has in this movie is hilarious. And he also, <laughs> like, he does a really good job of, like, at the beginning of their journey, having the ultimate, like, just happy to be here vibes. 
that I just love. And then watching that slowly give way to like the realization that he's, like you said, he thinks he's going to die because he believes that this is just like the TV show. It's just a great transformation of his character because it's such a flip. It's great. Oh, man. What? And I even forgot. That's a great reference because I forgot what he is so happy at the beginning. There's a great line when, uh, which, of course, we are still just quoting lines back and forth. But that's it's okay. just going to happen. There's it's a great gonna line. It's going to happen. There's a great line when Alan Rickman's character uh, is standing there and and Rockwell is just is just literally just gritting. Like, he's just happy. Yes. And yes. Alan Rickman's like, what? Like, what is it? And Rockwell says, I'm just psyched to be on the show, man. And he's just so, <laughs> so, so happy funny. to be there. It's amazing. Um, that's all I had in terms of actors. Tony Shalab does an amazing job. We already talked about that a little bit. What happened to Tony Shalab, by the way? Uh, he was he in... Made- Made Monk, Monk for a really long time. Got typecasted, probably. Yeah, I think that's probably. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. I never liked Monk. Did you? Uh, I don't. Didn't watch it. All right. Yeah. I, I saw a couple episodes. I couldn't get into it. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a procedural. You know, I, I don't really know much else yeah. about it. But yeah, a couple other notes. Uh, this is apparently Justin Long's first feature film. I actually yeah. uh, also really like Justin Long in most things. And then also Enrico Colantoni, uh, he plays Mathazar, and I think he is super good at it. Apparently, the voice of the the aliens was only determined during his line reading when he was trying out for the part. He just came in and said, "This is how I think they talk from reading the script," and they ran with it. So I think he does. A I great feel job bad. In I never, role. I never found out that guy's name because yeah, he kills it. Yeah, that, he's great. He does a perfect job of that. Also, shout out. Uh, er- early 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 rain wilson he's one of the background thermians oh yeah uh, later famous as dwight from the office but you can see him in a couple scenes in the back man forgot about that forgot about that he made it he made it great job uh so yeah the cast is immensely overqualified if it's okay i'll just i'll just go through a couple of mine real quick uh for other reasons why this movie works um it's a silly movie but there are real stakes to it Yep. And this is something I talk about a lot where I really love it when movies have real tangible stakes. This is one of my, as, as someone who actually quite enjoys Marvel movies, this is one of my biggest problems with them is that there's very seldom real stakes. Sure. Uh, usually it's like, oh, we kind of know, like they make it seem like real stakes, the world's going to end. But you're like, I know for a fact nothing's going to, big is going to happen here. But, like, the one I wrote down in this movie, well, first of all, Ceres is, like, genuinely a pretty terrifying villain. Yeah. And actually significantly more effective than quite a few Star Trek villains as well, yeah. I noted. Even as a kid, I noted that. I was like, he's kind of scarier than a lot of Star Trek villains. Um, I just wrote, it really kind of hits when they reveal almost offhandedly that almost every Thermian has been killed by Ceres. Yep. Like that's it's it, they don't tell you that until like probably three quarters of the way through the movie. Uh, and it, it kind of hits and suddenly it makes this into a much more, like I said, a much higher stakes sort of movie. It's a silly movie, but they actually again, there's real stakes happening. And I think that that always makes, you know, the drama and the, and the uh, I guess, just the journey of the movie much more intriguing and much more impactful i guess i don't know if you have any thoughts on that no yeah i think the tone is perfect it's not too dark or serious and yet it also takes itself very seriously but it's also very comedic i mean we've kind of overplayed that but i think i think it does a good job of creating like you were saying some really affecting moments in the movie without eroding the comedic 
tone that it needs to hold because it is still it is yeah. still fundamentally a comedy but like there are a couple scenes that are horror elements that are really effective in terms of how jarring they are like when they first see the video of Saris torturing the old captain that is such a jarring change of tone that is actually really well done right you're like you said yeah. suddenly there are stakes it's like hey this is what happens when we get this wrong and it's the first time that they really play or introduce that concept in it. It's a very effective way. I also always think about... And of course, about, that scene does get played for laughs because then they immediately try to bounce. They're yeah, like, nope, absolutely. we're out. You absolutely. We're leaving. Absolutely. And I mean, I also always think of the scene where like the little baby aliens eat the wounded one. There are just these moments that are just like, oh my God, right? And, and I think they juggle that tone really well. And then, I mean... We already talked about the the Quellic scene where he gets killed, and and Rickman gives such a, a an emotionally affecting kind of performance there. But there's also a couple of others. I mean, the other one that stands out the most to me in terms of a, a very well written, acted, performed, and within the flow of the movie, tonally uh, powerful scene is when you know Jason has to explain to Mathazar what's actually going on. And, you know, Sarga says yeah. he doesn't understand, explain as you would a child. And then I think Jason's only able to say, like, we pretended we lied. And you watch Mathazar just, like, collapse into himself. Yeah. And it's just like a holy crap. How is a scene in a movie like this so, like, hitting me so hard in the gut? So, yeah, I don't know. It does a very good job of juggling tones. Um, while still, unlike a movie like In Bruges, which is a dark comedy, this is not a dark comedy. This is a comedy no. that has powerful dark scenes, right? And I think that's an yeah. important thing, but it does it very well. I totally agree. Uh, what else you got? Why this movie works? Um, I had a couple. I mean, one I could just throw out is it's a perfect 103-minute runtime. Uh, yeah. This movie's lean. In and out. Yep. It's lean, lean, lean. And for comedies in particular, I, I always appreciate that. Um, well, I think just I, to, to, to really sorry, quick yeah. speak to that on one other thing, too. Uh, the logic of this movie actually doesn't hold up at all. And there's all these little things, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit in Stray Thoughts later, uh, that if the movie went longer would probably have become an issue. Because yeah. so Mike and I talk a lot about and I'm stealing this from someone, but a plot hole is only a plot hole if you recognize it in the movie. Right. And in that context, I don't think this movie has any plot holes. There's a lot of things you'll notice after the fact, or you'll, you'll think back on and be like, wait, what? But I think the, the runtime helps with that. If, if they stretch the premise longer, you would have started to be like, wait a second. This doesn't add up at all. There's Again, we'll get to it later, but there's little things. So yeah. it, it helps for that, too. It's really smart in that context that you know it moves pretty briskly when it needs to. Absolutely. And and that was actually kind of connected to something else I was going to say, which is I think one of the things I adore about this movie, and it actually works really well, is how committed they are to the premise of this movie and how they kind of almost use the premise as like a callback joke that they repeatedly make, but they do it so quickly that you never actually stop and think about, hey, that wouldn't actually make sense. <laughs> That's not actually possible. And I think the best example of that is, you know, they early in the film essentially have this quote that summarizes the entire movie uh it's from it's from mathazar he says yes in the last hundred years our society had fallen into disarray our goals our values had become scattered but since the transmission we have modeled many aspects of society from your example and has saved us your courage teamwork friendship 
through the adversity. In fact, all you see around you comes from the lessons we garnered from the historical documents. And what I love about, so that sets up the whole movie. But what I love mm-hmm. about that is they're so committed to that premise. And this is a perfect example of it that they literally design things that don't make any sense just because they're mimicking it. And, and the best example is the ship. The ship has a start yes. engine button. The ship won't answer to anyone but Weaver. We already talked about that. I love that they designed the Omega-13 device, but they don't know what it does, right? Which, if you yeah. think about long enough, is impossible. That doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, it doesn't you make any sense, do it. but it's really cool. Yeah, Exactly. But the fact that they keep using it as like this callback quick joke machine, you never stop to think about it in the movie. And it's because of that commitment to the simplicity of this mm. premise, which is that they watched a TV show and just created it. They don't ask, how did you create it? They don't ask, how do you come up with this stuff, even though it doesn't make sense? It just keeps running with it. And I think if at any point they weren't running so quickly and so committedly to that simple concept, the movie probably could have fallen off like the rails a little bit. But instead, I'm a little you up, disappointed. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed you didn't mention what I think is the best example of this. Uh, and, and a scene that I considered making my whole essay about, but I didn't. But I think the best example is when they go to shut down the core. Oh, the countdown and, clock. <laughs> and so the countdown clock is at 15 seconds, and he says, all you got to do is push the button. And they're like, okay, that's easy. They push the button, and nothing happens. The, the countdown clock keeps going. And then they they're, they're think they're going to die. They hug. And then nothing happens. They look, and it's at one second. And Gwen pauses, and then she says, oh, it always stops at one second on the show. Yeah. And I could write I could have written a whole essay about that scene because of because it is both making a joke out of the the original tropes of that kind of show, which is for some reason it always does end up stopping at one for any number of reasons. But it's also actually using that to do the same effect as those original shows, which is that you are in that moment like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? And it's just so smart. That's just such a clever idea. I love that scene so much. And I mean, it it even comes through with the fact where I had had like this realization this time watching it where I'm always a little bit like, why can't the aliens operate the technology they created? And you're like, oh, because it doesn't make any sense. And the aliens like are logical (laughs) beings. And it's like, yeah, of course they can't operate it because the show doesn't make any sense. And what they've created doesn't make any sense. So they're like, we don't know how to fly this. It's, it's absurd the whole thing it's all it's all ridiculous so i thought that was pretty funny um no i totally agree yeah and i had one more point and that is uh i actually think this is a really uh empathetic and interesting look at the actors from various eras who were parts of like phenomenons you know uh, david howard uh wrote the original script idea and he claimed that he got the idea after actually listening to Leonard Nimoy read a trailer for like a space documentary. And he started thinking about how, hey, all these famous Star Trek actors got pigeonholed into these roles that they probably aren't very interested in since the cancellation of Star Trek. And he essentially was like, what if we took these people and then they had to interact with real aliens? And like the whole plot came from that question, right? And it yeah. really, I, I really do think whether it's the car lot scene or any number of other ones, like it really got me feeling things and thinking about actors like Mark Hamill and like these people who do get pigeonholed because they were part of something so big, so young and just how hard that is to get out of. And I actually think this movie is really empathetic towards those people. So I thought yeah. that worked really well in the in the context of the film. Yeah, actually, it's funny you say that. It kind of reminds me almost a little bit of, of uh 
I, the documentary I think is called Best Worst Movie Trolls Two. Is that right? Yes, that's I, I think right. It was something like that. We should do Trolls and Two. We should do Trolls Two, man. I actually would rather do the documentary on it. <laughs> uh, but the one of the cool things about that movie is that you actually see this arc play out in real time because the the character it's following becomes like briefly a kind of minor celebrity on the basis of the movie getting notoriety as this terrible but fun movie. But then you also see him go through the process of sort of the world moving past that and him kind of still being trying to, to live up to this thing that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's just really clever. And I, I actually want to say, too, I've always had a sort of fascination with, like, stories about people who used to be, like, popular or well-known in some specific medium and have since been kind of forgotten. And I think it may go back to this movie. Yeah. I think that seeing this early on made me always think about their stories and how interesting that must be. Yeah. Um, in, in positive, but also, or excuse me, in negative, but I think also in maybe a few positive ways um, to, to kind of do that. And certain people like Leonard Nimoy are very interesting examples of that. Because again, he did go through this whole journey in and of himself. He hated that character, but then eventually he came back around and he was like, I actually drew to love that character. Um, and we'll actually talk about that a little bit with my essay too, but I, I just agree. I think that's a, a very interesting part of this movie. I only have two more really small things with why this movie works, but I just want to call out um, the music. And yeah. that's part of it. This is part of like the whole thing where the movie is secretly very good at being a Star Trek movie. Mm -hmm. And that that Galaxy Quest theme, I'm so sad that it's never appeared in anything else because it's a genuinely great heroic sci-fi opera theme, right? It is. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. It's just always, and maybe it's because I saw the movie really young too, so it had that impression on me as though it was the original, you know, Star Trek theme or whatever. Uh, it's just really good. It just portrays that again. They really understood, you know, what made those original series great, and they really made kind of just a good Star Trek movie. Um, and then a very small related note: there's actually genuinely cool sci-fi ideas in this movie. The minefield left over from a war. Yeah. The Omega-13 device that no one knows exactly what it does, but it either destroys the universe or possibly rearranges it. Um, Ceres in general. I, I just think this movie actually works as a sci-fi movie, which, again, we'll get to a little bit more later. Uh, but it just is really cool. You're ready to move on to maybe what holds this movie back? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. I don't have that much. I have actually four things. Uh, the first one I have, frankly, some of the CGI has aged a little badly. Yep. It's worth noting, uh, you already referenced that this movie uh, wasn't really... The studio didn't really know what to do with this movie. And uh, from what I gather, they had a decent budget, but not a great budget. And they spent most of it on things like actors, which is, I think, a very smart idea. The end result is that a lot of the CGI stuff, I think, kind of doesn't work. The little alien guys I wrote look a little bit like a PS2 game. Yep. Um, 
the the rock monster looks pretty bad. There's just a lot of things that you could you could nitpick and be like, that doesn't look great. It's not the point of the movie, so I, it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, but it's just something that holds it back. If in an ideal world, this would have been made with the budget of Avatar, and it would have been really cool. But that's okay. It's not what it's trying to do. But it does hold the movie back. Yeah, uh, I'd see that. I'd, I'd see the Avatar version of this movie. And yeah, it, it's kind of strange. What if James Cameron directed this movie? Oh, uh, it'd be. A, I can't, That'd be the best movie ever made. I can't wait. I, oh my gosh. <laughs> 3D. Um, yeah, it, well, it's, it's weird because sometimes it does hold up. Like when they're leaving the hangar with the ship is actually you're like, sure. oh, this this looks like pretty modern CGI work. But then, like, when Saris's ship holds up, you're like, that looks really, really, really bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And I, I also was a little disappointed in some of the, like, the physical effects. Like, when Saris's back blades come up, it looks really kind of silly looking. It's, like, obviously yeah. on springs. Um, they don't always get his mouth movement right. And anyway... So well, it yeah. seems like I, I didn't realize until this most recent watch that his lines are clearly overdubbed. Yeah. And it's actually really obvious in a lot of places. And yes. You're right. It doesn't quite add up. Really quick on the practical effects being bad. I, did, I didn't write that because I couldn't decide if that partially qualifies as part of the homage parody state of the sure. movie. Because sure. obviously original Star Trek... Uh, always had one of the prime things that happened was you had these practical effects that looked kind of bad because it was a tv show that was relatively cheap uh i don't know i don't know where that line ends like where the parody ends and the reel begins or whatever but uh, well it's it's something to note that's a that's a great segue into my largest point which is definitely sigourney weaver's character which is sure. i i don't know where the line between parody and feeding stereotype and feeding problematic images of women begins and ends. And I don't always think that this movie uh, finds that line correctly. I think there are definitely a couple choices that even Sigourney Weaver might have made as the person making the creative choice that I'm like, eh, I don't know if that ages very well or if that really adds to the film. Because um, sometimes it just it just feeds stereotypes rather than really mocking them as effectively as it should. And then sometimes you, just by naming you, it, or you're ahead. not actually. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, and then some things are just, they're just common and problematic enough that it's like, even if you're naming it in a joking way, it's still not actually helping the conversation of deconstructing these things. But yeah, I totally agree. I was going to say, can I tell you a example of exactly what you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, this movie, as of this recording, is free on YouTube, uh, which is cool. So I, I watched it on YouTube. Uh, but when I searched for Galaxy Quest, the fourth result was titled a video titled Sigourney Weaver's Boobs in Galaxy Quest. And yep. I didn't watch it, but from what I could tell, it was probably just a cut of all the scenes where her breasts are very, like, visible. Yep. Uh, so that's kind of what you're talking about, right? It's like, well, maybe it was a parody, but it it also is doing the same thing as those movies prob or those old shows problematically did. So that's a little tough. I, I yeah. completely agree. Yeah. Uh, Could I, I build off that, too, with uh, one of my pet peeves in movies is unearned uh, romance subplots. Oh. Uh, one of my, one no of my favorite examples of the reverse of this is uh, Pacific Rim, which we have to do Pacific Rim at one point. I, but love, at rate, I love it. Pacific Rim, there isn't a romantic subplot, which I think is great because it, it feels like there will be. Uh, this movie, I just really hate it when Gwen and Jason kiss at the end. I think it's completely a nerd. It doesn't make any sense in the fiction. 
Uh, it doesn't make any sense to the characters, and it doesn't even work as the parody homage level. I, I'm just baffled why that's even in there. Yeah. Um, again, it feels like kind of a relic of a older way of looking at a movie where it's like, oh, this is an adventure movie. So the the characters, you know, the, the, the main male lead and the main female lead have to, like, have this romantic thing going on. I just think it's it's unnecessary. It doesn't add anything, and, and it holds the movie back. It's just not just a dumb decision. I don't like yeah. it at all. Yeah, it's it's funny. We I, I really am. I do want to make sure like I'm I overall praise Tim Allen's work and Sigourney Weaver's work in this movie. They have no chemistry. Yeah, absolutely. Together. They have no romantic chemistry. It doesn't. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like they yeah. want to be in a. I I just don't get it. I'm with you. It adds nothing to the film. It feels pigeonholed. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And it's funny, I would even say they have tremendous comedic chemistry. Yeah. I, the whole cast does, really. Yeah. But uh, it, the scene works when it's the two of them going to the choppers and, and you know, absolutely. having to go through all that stuff. But, yeah, you're right. They don't have any romantic chemistry. Absolutely. Uh, I have two more small ones. I'll just blow through them real quick. Uh, this could almost go as straight thoughts because it's very nitpicky. The mechanics of Jason getting left on the planet don't make any sense. Yeah, sure. And I bring that up a lot in movies like this, which again makes me wonder if it's part of the parody. But I just feel the need to mention, it's just like, I cannot visually figure out how he gets dragged back onto the planet. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, finally, this is actually, this is a weird point. And I'm open to just being told I'm wrong about this. Okay. Earlier, we mentioned that the movie has a very short runtime and that works in its favor. But rewatching it the other day, I felt like it could have been longer just because by the end, it's kind of rushing through a lot of plot points. And I actually, what I wrote down, I'm going to pitch this. And if I'm wrong, if this is another Truman Show situation where you're just like, that's a dumb idea and it's like, cool, I'll accept that. Do you think this could have worked as a modern miniseries better than as a movie? Hmm. Because I was like, I, I don't want to sit in the space for longer than an hour, hour and a half. Because like we said, you start to realize all of these problems with it. But I think that chopped up into episodes and released as just like a modern HBO Max show, they would have been able, because there are all these little arcs that in sub stories that I think in their head writing it, they have this pretty significant character changes but they just don't get room to really play out i think yeah and sure. i just feel like with a little more space it would have actually they could have had even more fun uh i don't know what do you think totally off base no, maybe I it could have worked maybe it couldn't have i don't think it's i think it could have worked i mean i think it's a different thing i think you end up having almost like entire star trek episodes that are parodies where they do different missions and yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, I, I do wonder at what point does the charm of this premise wear off? And it's just like, I've spent too much time. Like you were kind of saying an yeah. hour and a half feels like the right amount of time for me to sit in the midst of this universe before I just get annoyed or I start overthinking it. So I don't, I don't actually have an answer. I think it could work. Um, sure. And, and it is interesting. Part of it is like the romantic subplots and stuff. You know, I almost wonder if this movie could have been shorter if they just cut out all the romantic subplots. Um, sure. And if it would feel like there are less hanging chads. And I, I don't know. mind. Having said that, we never talked about it. I don't mind the one with uh, I mean, that's funny. Shalab and it's the Thurbiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really funny. I have, I have questions. I have questions. <laughs> but it's Actually, funny. 
one funny scene that we'll just to do one more quote i just love when uh after he successfully digitizes the rock monster and they start kissing and having a moment the Part about that scene that's amazing is Sam Rockwell's character getting increasingly uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he does such a good job of that, and he is so, yeah. Uh, sorry, that's just an incredibly funny scene. But yeah, I don't know. I guess the thing I was just trying to solve is by the end, just out of curiosity, do you agree that it feels like the last half an hour sort of is rushing? Yeah. It's sort of like we got a lot of plot to get through, and we don't actually have any time, so... It's just like big plot point, big plot point, big plot point. In a, that was in a, what I was thinking. I was like, we could have stretched that out probably. Right? In a really, in a really funny way, I think the movie could have been better without the Mega Thirteen device, where Saurus just gets killed with the mine attack, and they drop him back home. Um, yeah. Because I, I do think that that's what makes it feel rushed. As they're like, oh, Saurus is back. Oh, we have to figure out what the Mega Thirteen does. Oh, we have to, you know kill him again oh we have to and there's a crash landing and there's all this stuff and he has to attack the captain's uh, quarter or whatever the 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 captain's deck or whatever that yeah. all feels very fast and you're like if they don't have to use the omega 13 you cut all of that so i do wonder about that but i don't know i really love the omega 13 device it's a though, funny bit it's, exactly it's a funny bit yeah so, so. so it's hard to say yeah 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 okay yeah. right. uh do you have anything else for why this movie doesn't work yeah i got two quick ones um I'm just going to say this, and then we can move on. I'm going to expose some political leanings here. Uh, I just wrote, Tim Allen as a famous person? Doesn't work for yep. me. Um, going to move past that, though. Uh, the other I'm one getting, I have I agree. is that ever since your Pulp Fiction monologue, I have to point this out every time. But you told me that coincidences can get characters into trouble but not out of trouble. And when he accidentally switches walkie-talkies with Justin Long's character and that saves them in the end, John... It breaks your rule. I I mean, it's true. Well, first of all, it's not my rule. It's Pixar's rule. It's so your just rule, to clarify, <laughs> Just to clarify. Uh, but actually, that is a good example of it. And frankly, that's a reason why, like we were saying, a lot of the logic of the movie falls apart yeah. quite yeah. a bit. But that's where it's helped by being in and out so quick. But you're right. That's a great example where it's like, wait, what? And it's just moving fast enough that you don't realize it. Sure. Uh, yeah. But yeah. The, there's issues with that cool let's move on we got stray thoughts i have actually maybe the most i've ever had so uh let's, I just, got a ton. let's just let's do it let's just do this let's just go real quick um i'll start if it's okay yeah lots of these are things by the way that i've known for a long time that i've shared with people a lot because i really love this movie uh we've kind of hinted at this a couple times the shooting script of the movie was significantly darker than the final product uh most notably there was apparently a lot more kind of blue jokes there was a lot more kind of gross out humor a bit of that is left in the movie but there was also quite a lot more cursing uh a lot of that is still noticeable my favorite example is when they come upon the chompers which is a scene i already mentioned uh when they first see them gwen quite loudly yells well screw that but if you watch her lips when she says that you can very clearly see that the line was overdubbed and what she actually yells is, well, F that. Yeah. Very loud. It's and, awesome. And so there's all these little scenes like that. I just think it's really interesting. Uh, I don't know if it would have been better or worse. I kind of want to see that movie, the R-rated Galaxy Quest. I think it probably helped in the long run that it's not as cynical or as dark as that original uh, script was. I think you're right. What you got? Uh, this is just kind of like a tidbit. 
the prefix of the protector's registration number is NTE3120, which is meant to look like it alludes to like the similar Space Federation numbers, but really it just stands for not the Enterprise. <laughs> I remember that was that. funny. I like that. Yeah. Uh, as soon as that Quake, as soon as Quake the Thermian tells Alexander that he looks up to him so much, you you know that guy's dead, right? Yeah. Oh, done. I just done. It's, it's just one of those telegraphed things where I'm like, maybe it's because I've seen the movie and I know it, but man, that guy never had a chance. Yeah, it's over before he even started. It's like, dang, dude, <laughs> you're too likable, dead. That's it. You're out. What you got? Um, how did you respond to the fact that the villains of this movie are essentially a race of the creatures from The Grinch Who Stole Christmas? <laughs> Positively? Um, did you like watching him get killed? Um, watching the Grinch get murdered? I... I'm genuinely speechless. I have, I have, <laughs> I have no take. You've, you've bested me, Mike. Ah, checkmate. Well, I'm just gonna move on. I, okay. It's it's an it's an incredible point, but I'm just gonna keep moving. Uh, this is a weird thing to mention, but the movie came out in 1999, which is the same year that the Mummy came out, and I've always connected the two in my head. <laughs> I feel funny. like the tone the tone is extremely similar where it's an adventure movie that is just having fun with the idea of adventure, but also it is like partially parody, partially homage. I don't know. I just want to talk about the mummy for a second. We should do that movie at some point. I love too. the mummy. It's like a I millennials like heaven. The mummy. I was just hearing someone talk about that where they were like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's do millennials like this. And the person couldn't make sense of it. They thought it was ironic. I'm like, I, I don't them. think it's ironic. No. I think it's just They're a really wrong. good movie. They're yeah. just wrong. <laughs> They're just wrong. <laughs> I could live with that. Follow up uh, to my previous point: Is this movie better if Jim Carrey plays Saris? Ooh, man, yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Honestly, I, I hate to say it because I, I don't think it's a bad performance, but I feel like almost anyone as Saris, like any, anyone notable <laughs> as Saris, would have been like really welcome. Like that's yeah. the only character that it's very effective in the movie. But it is a little forgettable. Like, I don't think about Saris, right? Sure. That could have been an interesting role. Uh, the only thing with Carrie is I, I don't think that character shouldn't be comedic, though, right? So that yeah, is the only notable What if thing. he plays it the exact same way he played the Grinch who stole Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I'm just going to move on again. Uh, <laughs> this is one of my favorite, um, like, like, little trivia things about any movie, and... I don't remember this, which tells me I probably also didn't see this movie in theaters, but in some theatrical cuts of the movie, the early scenes of the film were in a slightly compressed aspect ratio, like slightly stouter on the sides. Hmm. And then when the ship doors open, when Jason Nesmith is about to travel back to Earth for the first time, and, and basically when you realize, or when he realizes that he's on a real spaceship, the ratio widened with the doors to fit the full screen. That's really cool. Yeah, it uh, is. Apparently, a lot of the, the theatrical cut of the movie in most theaters did that. I, I don't remember that, so I kind of I kind of think I didn't see it in a movie theater. I don't remember. Uh, but that's just that's a really cool thing that, unfortunately, they can't really do on just like the home video cut. So that's why mostly we, we don't have that today. I would be really uh, pissed if I worked in a theater. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> I think it was I don't think they actually had the screen move. I think it was just the picture on the screen. 
I don't believe you. I guess I guess I don't know. I, I, I yeah, I don't know, but uh but yeah, that's cool. Well yeah. Uh so like are we supposed to forgive that they do in fact get like a ton of Thermians killed? Because I, I maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but is the implication when they say we are all that's left that the that Saurus went and destroyed like the space station also? In other words, like did this did Tim Allen's actions literally get the majority of what was left of the species wiped out? It's unclear. Uh, I will say I always believed it was implying that that wasn't true. And the reason why is because the thing about the Thermians, them being the only ones that's left, comes right after they ask about their home world specifically. Okay, okay. So they say something about our home world, and then they say, oh, we don't have a home world to go back to. Sarah's killed all of them. And it is a reveal, but I don't think the reveal is that that happened within the timeline of the movie. It's that that's the, you know, that's what they have been on their journey before the before they reached out to the crew. That's what I took, but it's actually, frankly, unclear. So I don't know, maybe. Uh, This is just a quick thing, but I just wanted to note that, unsurprisingly, as a kid, I always skipped the scene where they confessed to Mathisar that the show is fake. Because it was too too brutal emotionally. Uh, I think I also tended to skip the scene, the Energizer scene, even though it was really funny. But the uh, inside-out creature was just too disgusting. Yeah. I I think I always skipped that as a kid. I always did the same thing when they shoot the rock monster into space. I just feel so bad for the rock monster. It's like he didn't <laughs> deserve know, that. We didn't mention how funny that scene is, too. And I love how when the rock monster's floating away into space, there's this little musical cue. Oh, it's That's beautiful. kind of like, yeah, that's kind of like this, this pretty little thing, like almost like, wow, this is so wondrous. But it's such a ridiculous seed. I always yeah. thought that was being played for laughs. I, I don't it know, is. but it, seems it, is. Like it is. Of course, it is, and it like is huddling to itself. But then again, it's also not going to die, so it's just going to float. It's a consciousness floating in the emptiness of space for eternity. <laughs> for eternity. I just feel really bad for the rock monster. That's all. That's all I have to say about that. It's um, a beautiful moment. This is actually like a a one of those moments where we have to look at ourselves. Do we really pick another movie with children minors? Like Temple of Doom, Spirited Away, child labor is becoming a theme for this podcast. You know, wow. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say those all came out within a few years of each other. Temple of Doom was way earlier. Yeah, but we picked them. I was just, I don't know. Maybe people were really into that back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, but I'm talking about our choices, John. We chose to talk about these movies. I didn't start a podcast to be put on blast for the the movies I picked. So thank you very much. (laughs) Also, also, those characters canonically are not children because they look at Tim Allen and they say in their language, he's like a little child. And then they say, let's hit him with a rock and then eat him. Um so canonically, even though they look like children, they're not. So okay, well, I guess that's better. Averted. <laughs> it's <laughs> way better. Averted. Uh, <laughs> my next one is a question. Accepting Toy Story is this the best role Tim Allen ever had? Because I think Toy Story is the obvious one, and he does that Buzz Lightyear character mm. so well. Yeah. But besides that, I don't even know if there's a lot of competition. I feel like it's Home Improvement and. Um, and uh, the Santa Claus, both of which I, I don't think I do not think hold up to this movie. We're putting we're putting Santa Claus in there. Um. Is there? Can you name me another what, movie that anyone knows him from? No. I gotta look um, this up. 
Let's see. Who is Cletus Tout? Is a movie he was in. Um, you are clearly oh, reading from the, sh IMDb. the Shaggy Dog. You are so much Christmas making my point. It's crazy. Christmas with the Cranks. Wild Hogs. Yeah, quite, yeah, no, this is, this yeah, is definitely, quite frankly, I rest my case. Yeah, his career really went downhill. This is rough. I don't feel bad for him. Again, I don't feel too bad about it. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, okay with that. I'm better. I'm happier. Um, so this is, a, I actually, here's a question for you. Yeah. I'm curious about the existential ideas behind this film. How much of the show do you think directs the actual universe of this movie? Like, do you think them having an episode where the, and then talking about how the baby alien world would be reflected in the show? Do you think that actually shapes that planet into existence? So, like, what this if this show biggest, has cosmic yeah. impact? That's what I'm asking. So, this is the biggest plot hole in the entire movie, and the biggest piece of logic, uh, the biggest jump in logic. That within the movie, you they just sort of invite you onto the trade and you're just having fun, so you're like, whatever. But as soon as the credits rolled, I think even probably the first time I saw this movie, I was like, wait, what? That, what? How can they be finding, how come in the show, there's Beryllian spheres that they use to power the ship? And then somehow in reality, there are also Beryllian spheres that they use to power the ship that is why are there all these things that are one-to-one -one? it it makes no sense and like you said it opens up this weird existential question of like <laughs> wait was the show somehow drawing on so i actually went the other way i tended to think like somehow were the creators drawing on reality without knowing it oh that's good i like that um but i mean you say that it still doesn't it makes exactly as much sense as them somehow influencing the reality of the universe. Well, I mean, we, uh, we believe that narratives shape reality, John. So, I mean, is this film just for us? Is this just the ultimate conclusion? I guess so. It's just of it's narrative crazy. shaping, shaping our existence. I actually think the most egregious example of this though, is that little joke where they've made uh, Alan Rickman's character. They said, we, we made everything based on the food that comes from your home world. How does the fictional character have a home world that is apparently a real world with a real dining culture sufficiently advanced enough that they can find something that well, so would play exactly to that race? It, it's crazy I, to think about. It's like, why? I think, I think what they were saying is it's like in the Star Trek series. I know that they have like these uh, technologies that like can basically create food of any kind out of thin air. Oh, so I so think you're what saying they're saying it's not is that they, they watch the show. His yeah. 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 I could, I guess I can accept that. It's still, it's still wild. It's a yeah. lot of wild stuff. It uh, is. But yeah, it opens up a can of worms. So the answer is, I don't know. I don't have an answer. <laughs> uh, this is just, we're starting to get into really small stuff here, but that's fine. Um, I wrote, maybe Thermians are physically different. I guess they are. Can you really be suffocated for that long? They didn't have air for a really long time. Yeah, that's doesn't, just, that doesn't really work. It's just, it's just kind of weird. Can you really have sex with a Thermian? I'm just going to move on to my next point. <laughs> uh, a, lot, a lot of questions about the Thermian anatomy. A lot of questions about Thermian anatomy. It is pretty funny, though, when, uh, again, just because of Sam Rockwell's response... 
but when suddenly there's the the fins behind him yeah and and they fall down and they're obviously out of shot and sam rockwell is like guys guys and then a second (laughs) later he says oh no no that's not right it's great no it's great and he's Uh, just so disturbed it's awesome uh, similar nitpick though. How does Saris know what tissue paper is when he uses it as a metaphor for his ship tearing the other one apart? Uh, I assumed that was an in-universe translator thing, but that also doesn't really hold up because he talks to them in person as well. So I don't really know. Okay. <laughs> I, I, that was my lazy attempt to to do it, but I think that's what I told myself as a kid because I, I noticed that like the first time as well. I'm like, that's a weird metaphor to reach for when you aren't a human. Yeah. Um, in a weird way, I was always jealous of the kinds of nerds like Brendan in the movie, yeah. because I was always too lazy to invest that much into anything. You know what I mean? I, I kind of watched. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. "Damn, that guy!" Like, like respect. Frankly, I, I would never have done that. I, I just always respected it, but I, I didn't ever do it. So I mean, obviously, I didn't respect it that much. But not all that much, yeah. No. So. Uh, Like, um, the government steals Tony Shalhoub's girlfriend and he never sees her again, right? Well, there's a lot of... I'm just going to segue from that into my next one because it's very related. Did NASA slash the U.S. government have anything to say about a super advanced spaceship crashing into L.A.? Well, no, because they let him go make a TV show after that, which I think is an interesting choice. But, yeah. It's it's a little wild. I'm like, I, I feel like someone somewhere would have would have had something to say about that. Uh, yeah, lots of open questions there at the end. Frankly, this is my next point. Frankly, I don't know if you're equipped to answer this, and actually I don't know if I'm equipped to answer this either, but a lot of people who are equipped to answer it ask this question. Is this secretly the best Star Trek movie ever made? Yeah, I saw that um, in the Star Trek fan voting. It was voted seventh in 2013. Yeah, so... Which is pretty um, high if you think about the yeah. number of Star Trek movies there are. Uh, yeah, I don't know. No. I mean, Into Darkness? <sighs> you, you, just, anyway. you just went straight for it, too. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, it, which is a more profound reveal? This is a personal taste question. Han walking in on Vader in Cloud City or Sarah showing up right after Jason gets teleported? Uh... Probably Saris, I think. Yeah, Cause, I cause, think so. Also, because Saris just keeps coming back. Like, and he so just, the first time is just... like a huge, huh? And then you're like, oh, it's Saris again. Like four times <laughs> in, the, in the movie. Uh, as long as we're on the topic of Saris, is he British? He's got like a very lightly <laughs> British accent, uh, which is really funny. I, I don't even, I don't even know if that's meant to be a joke. That's just really funny to me. Yeah, I don't uh, know what that actor's trying to do with that character. Uh, we already mentioned that probably should have been recast, but I, I don't know what he's trying to do. I don't even know what he's... what what. Yeah, I don't know I don't know thoughts. how it's written it's either. Yeah, it's, an it's a strange character. direction. Uh, this is my last one. Um, is Tony Shalhoub's character a sociopath in this movie? So I actually... Oh, yeah. go ahead. I, I was going to say, I assume that canonically he is high the whole time. Since, well, since they make the joke, I was like, I just sort of assumed that was accurate. That, that's fine. But does that explain why he kills he kills the two aliens, making them suffocate to death, and he also kills all the ones in the rock chamber? And then after both, he makes a, like, 
dry joke. Like the first one, he makes a this really dry joke about the door being stuck, and he essentially shoves, like shrugs it off like it was nothing. And I mean, I don't know about if you know this, but even when people kill someone in self-defense, like the first time they take a human life, they're usually in shock and then haunted by their first murder. And this dude's just like cracking jokes, which leads me to wonder, was this even his first murder? And that's not even getting into <laughs> the fact that he's apparently super cool with alien squid sexual relationships, which to each their own. All I'm trying to say is I'm not entirely sure I trust the psychological stability of this character. I mean, I think he's a. F I, I, I wouldn't want to hang out with him if that's the question. <laughs> I, I, I would be, I would be nervous. I, I, I would be afraid. So I, Wor in that worst sense, hang, I think worst hang. This guy, Llewellyn Davis, or all the characters from Zodiac. <laughs> wow, that's just that's the million dollar question. Uh, I'm going with. I'm going with Llewellyn Davis because I, as I said last time, the cop in in Zodiac, I definitely yeah. would hang out with. Yeah. I mean, he would hate hanging out with me, but I'd have a great time. And at least um, you could smoke weed with Tony Shalhoub, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah. See, there you go. Um, this is my last one too. I'm, we've never done this. We ended on this the, on the same one. That's amazing. Uh, this is actually so minor. I wish I had saved a better one for my last one. When at the end of the movie, when uh. uh Justin Long is running out with the fireworks and his parents interrupt him. There's a news story about all of the actors not showing up to the convention. <laughs> Since when has actors not showing up to a convention been on the news? Because it looks like just the normal news. Yeah. I don't think that's a who I don't cares? think that's a news story. I, I would be surprised if I opened up my Google news feed tomorrow and it said Star Trek actors don't show up to a convention. I'd be like, okay. I would be I, I, actively upset. I'd be like, okay. I don't care. Why would you fill my mind with this nonsense? <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, actually, I had one more I did want to mention. This is another kind of just cool little trivia thing. Uh, so at the very beginning of the movie, when we're seeing, like, an episode of the in-universe Galaxy Quest show, the uh, deck, as, as they're getting shot by things, just like the original Star Trek show, doesn't really move, so the characters have to fake being shoved around oh, and stuff like that. Hey. Later, later on, when they're on the quote-unquote real uh, deck of the ship, the it's actually the more mo a more modern set that does physically move. I just thought that's a cool detail because again, it betrays that they understand the things that made the original kind of fake, but then also know how to do the things to make the new one. Or, or to make the in-universe real thing look a little bit more real. I just think that's a cool little detail. That is. I like that. Okay, well, that's it for Stray Thoughts. Stick around after the break. We're going to hit some essays that Mike and I have each prepared. Stick around. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, for the next section of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared a little essay, kind of diving in a little deeper to some aspect of the movie, something we wanted to uh, talk about often in relation to spiritual ideas. Uh, I believe, Mike, you're going first, right? That's correct. Okay, whenever you're ready. Your life is not about you. There is perhaps no statement that's more universally true of the various traditions that talk about spirituality. You save your life by losing it. You keep what you have by giving it away. 
you find love by loving others. Learning this paradoxical truth is, in many ways, the very purpose of spirituality. Perhaps my favorite description of this comes from the Franciscan friar Richard Rohr in his book Falling Upward. Rohr argues that spirituality, when engaged healthily, is about the transition between what he calls the first and second half of life. Now, for Rohr, these terms aren't necessarily about age. You could be old as heck and never actually transition to what he calls the second half of life. No, for him, they refer to the shift that can take place that we're all capable of doing between ego construction, the first half of life, and ego deconstruction, the second half of life. You see, the first half of life is where we build the container of our ego, where we, through our clear dualistic measures of success and affirmation, create what we believe is our identity. In other words, where we define ourselves by what we do, things like how much we earn, what we achieve, the checklists that we create and then check off as we go about our lives. It's fundamentally a self-centered task because obviously it's about me, what I do, what I achieve, who I am, why I matter and how I can measure that and know that definitively. And for Roar, what I like about this book is that he doesn't think that this is a bad thing. In fact, he believes that this ego construction is a good and necessary task. We need to build our ego to give our lives structure and security, especially when we're young, to have the confidence that we can leave home and achieve something and be okay, and to believe that we have a destiny that is unique to us and that we must move forward into the world in order to achieve it. Essentially, in the classical hero's journey, we need the first half of life. We need to build our ego container because it's what sends us on the adventure out of the village at all. However, as Roar argues, and as I believe, we were never meant to stay in this first half of life, because ultimately, this container can never be enough. The ego at some point will inevitably fail us or prove to be insufficient for ultimate meaning. In the worst case, we often only realize this when we die or as we face death when we're forced to confront the fact that we accumulated all this stuff, we achieved all these successes for ourselves, and we have to face the truth that none of it can come with us. In the best cases, though, as spiritual teachers often teach, it comes through a spiritual death before our actual dying, a moment during our lives when we realize that our self-centered ego identity and pursuits aren't enough to fulfill us, usually through an experience of great love or great suffering, something that makes us die to who we thought we were and forces us to question whether our lives really can or should be only about our ego inflation, only about me. That is the beginning of this transition to the second half of life, where we've made the container only to realize that using it purely for ourselves is empty or hollow, where we are forced to ask, what is it for? That becomes the fertile ground for realizing that all that we have was given, not earned. That it doesn't come with us when we die, and it isn't really enough to define us in the present. For experiencing profound gratitude for what we've been given. This awareness that it's not our own. And only then, out of that awareness, the potential for awakening to and embracing that spiritual paradoxical truth, my life is not about me. It's a gift that was always meant to be given away. 
to bless others as we've been blessed. That is the focus of the second half of life, embracing this other-focused consciousness that I only keep what I give away, that I only live by dying, that I discover what my life is for when I accept that it isn't about me. And for me, this is what Galaxy Quest is about, at least in terms of its human character arcs. The whole cast, you could argue, transitions between the first and second half of life over the course of this movie. But in particular, during this rewatch, I found myself seeing this in Jason and Alexander. I think their two characters capture it beautifully. Both men devoted their lives to achieving the goals that their egos promised would define them, that they believed would give them true meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Jason, to be famous, rich, and adored by hordes of fans, telling him over and over that they care about what he's made, that he matters, that he's good enough. Alexander, to be an actor, to be taken seriously, revered, remembered for his craft. And both, in their own way, arrive at a moment where that effort to construct that perfect container proves futile. Jason's self-centeredness, captured in the snarky retort that the fans love him almost as much as he loves himself, is shattered by a single degrading comment from two teenagers that he happens to overhear in a bathroom stall, showing how fragile that identity truly is. Alexander, despite being worshipped by fans, hates his work because it isn't what he wants to be known for. As he says firmly, I won't go out there and say that stupid line one more time. I won't, even though people desperately want to hear him do it. It's as if both have forgotten entirely that their work matters to others. The fans only exist in their minds to reinforce or degrade their internal perceptions of themselves. Thus, both hate what has come to define them. Neither can appreciate what they have or find fulfillment or contentment in it. Neither can feel even an ounce of gratitude or joy from the fact that it means so much to other people. Both only know it isn't what they want or feel they need. And both hate it because ultimately they think it's all about them. And what is, isn't enough. And in that, I think what we see beautifully portrayed in the film is that both through this journey begin to transfer from the first to the second half of their lives. This moment where despite having achieved all that they set out to achieve, accomplishing what very few actors ever could, they are still crushed by dissatisfaction and emptiness. That question of what is this all for that their egos can't seem to adequately answer. That sends them on the journey Jason, because he believes it will lead him to be a real captain, a real leader, someone truly to be admired. Alexander, because it offers him a chance to be a real actor, as Jason says. Both set out for all the old same ego reasons, and yet as they suffer, fail, and watch who they are proven incapable of doing anything good for the people that come across their path, as they both experience the death of themselves, as they watch themselves shrink in the face of real challenge, you get to watch them grow into the characters that they had only ever acted like before this journey. Jason, after confronting his own deception, is able to actually be a hero, because it's no longer about his image or his sense of success. It's about saving and easing the pain of those that he now cherishes for more than just their devotion and adoration to him. At the end, he's able to stand before fans and actually enjoy his lot in life because he can give them what they love. He can make their lives or days better. He can bless them with what he has, what he's been given.
and he chooses to do so. Alexander, following his own ego shattering, is able to hold the hand of a dying friend and say with real love that line he despised. By Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Orvon, he shall be avenged. He gets over himself enough to see what Quellic needs, what he has to give that would ease his suffering, to sacrifice his ego because it would simply bless another who needs it, to choose to forget himself enough to give back what he's been given. Both exit the movie capable of actually appreciating their lives, of loving others, of finding real purpose in who they are and what they do moving forward because both tried living only for themselves and found it to be empty and utterly lacking. Both learned to move forward embracing that simple but profound truth. My life isn't about me. So maybe it's about others. Maybe it's about blessing whoever's in front of me and just giving back what I've been given in each moment. And paradoxically, in that giving away, I think they are able to find and keep what gives them joy and purpose. They are able to surrender their false selves and actually find their true selves. They're able to become the sacrificial heroes that they always wanted to be, but couldn't become until they let go of what they thought that meant and who they thought they had to be in order to become it. They had to truly figure out that their lives aren't about them and they could be about so much more. Yeah, man, I think that's great. Uh, yeah, we've both so so you know for the listeners, Mike and I have both talked about some of these things quite a lot before. Um, I don't know if I'd connected them to some of the themes in this movie in that same way. I think the first thing that came to mind, um, just by way of response, if that's okay, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've talked at length. At this point, we sound like a broken record, but we've talked at length about the idea of control. And one of the things I think is really cool about about what you're talking about with these characters switching to living their life for other people is you also see the way that, in a sense, they're switching to prioritizing what they're actually able to control. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, at the beginning of the movie, you know, what they're really trying to control is what they are being given, right? They, when they're living for themselves, they they want to have all these things. They want people to give them adoration or to give them acclaim or whatever. And it, by the end of the movie, when they've switched that emphasis, they've now are trying to control what they are giving out to others, which yeah. is what they actually are capable of controlling, mm. right? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that that was just the first. That that was just one of the main things I wrote down. That in a way, I think that's what's so cool about watching that journey is you see what what they give out to other people and yeah. the way that they sort of recognize this is something I can control. Yeah. It's so funny. Uh, it's, there's a, a podcast I listened to and they were talking to an author and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not sure I completely buy this sentiment because I do think sometimes people want things that are, uh, you shouldn't give them, but there he essentially was making the point of like, why, why don't we just give people what they want and how much easier is it? At least in our personal relationships where it's like, man, I really want to be loved and this person isn't giving me love, so I'm going to give them the opposite. I'm going to act like a piece of crap, right? I'm going to deny love. And they're just talking about how like absurd that is, where it's like, you know you want love, and all you can control is whether you give someone love. 
So like, why would you in this moment give something that get not give this person something you know that they would would make them happier, would make them better, would would is something that they want. Like, why are you withholding yeah. that, right? And I do think it's about control. It's about that idea that like, if I withhold, I can manipulate. And the reason we manipulate is because we tell ourselves that we can force the someone outside of ourselves to give us something if we do it the right way, if we press the right buttons, right? Um, so yeah, I just think that I think you're right. I think there's this cool shift that you can. I, I love that reading. This the shift towards. I can't control whether people give me adoration or respect me for the things that I want them to respect me for, but I can recognize that this performance I've given makes their lives better. So why don't I just give it to them? Why don't I just yeah. find meaning in that? Right. Um, I think that's a really cool. With the, yeah, absolutely. With the special proviso, this, this maybe goes without saying, but it's worth mentioning with that quote you were talking about with the author there, there, there's special circumstances where that doesn't apply. Oh, that's what I was saying. I don't think I buy into it. In an abusive relationship, for an example, it's like, uh, you, you, you know, you don't want to just give them what they want. You don't want to just, oh, well, so that is notable. As a, as a recovering addict, I can tell you from experience, there are things that (laughs) in moments I may (laughs) want that I hope people don't give to me because they love me enough to be like, Mike, I don't think you actually want this. Um, so yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Like I said, I don't buy into it. But I yeah. do like the sentiment, at least reflecting on my own behavior of like, why do I withhold really out of this desire or out of this this anger that I'm not getting something? Why do I then withhold it from others? Right. Yeah. Because there's something well, deeply it, controlling about that. That's just that's, it's it's a delusion to some degree. But well, and it's also funny, too, because the other side of the equation, when you do switch to that, I'm so, so taking that example where it's like if I want love from this person i can't control what they give to me i can just control how i act towards them i think the other interesting thing about that is it's it's scary because it requires vulnerability yeah because i'm ultimately i didn't have control over how they responded but now i'm letting go of even the illusion of having that control yeah i'm literally just saying i i all i can do is be as much of a good person or whatever the word you want to use as i can be and everything about how they give that back to me or what they do with that is t- in total, I'm totally letting go of, which is terrifying. Uh, but it's also more honest. It's more accurate to how the world works in the first place. And you're just sort of correctly, per, you know, positioned in relationship to that. So it's that, but that's the other thing, of course, is it's scary. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Um, just really quick too. The only other real note I had, um, it's just something I think is cool because as you were talking about that ego creation and ego deconstruction process, right? Yeah. I think one of the cool things when I think about the characters in this movie, uh, and I love that comparing it to Jason and and Alexander, um, is that you actually see the way that that process of ego creation and deconstruction is sort of just another form of the hero's journey. Yeah. Because when I thought about the characters, I'm like, you know, it's funny because I only ever thought about it as as the traditional hero's journey arc. And it is, but it is what you're describing as well. It's sort of both. And I think there is something really cool and really powerful in that, how the most, the, the most well-known and often used blueprints for how a good narrative works is that process, is that same sort of having the sense of what I can control and what I can't and and being deluded in that sense, having that delusion broken apart and having to emerge once I've reconciled those differences. Yeah. And emerging from that in the hero's journey from that underworld, but 
in most narratives just from that place of crisis and being able to have my right relationship with the world and my right relationship with what I can and can't control. I just think that's really cool. And it's, it's why this is such a compelling arc for characters at all, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's because it's so dang relatable. I mean, I think that's how most myths came about is there are these universal arcs to what it means to be human. And it's why we connect to the stories often that adhere to this because it's, I mean, we're dumb monkey brains and we find it easier to find ourselves in those characters. Like if you've ever been someone, which 99.999% of us are, like I still am currently probably in the process more of the first half of life than the second. Um, I think the concept of the second half of life for me is more of a a guidepost than somewhere I'm at. Right. But I relate deeply to the idea of getting everything I wanted and then being like, Oh, I, I'm not better. It hasn't fixed me. We've talked about this a thousand times of this idea that when I live my life for me and achieving my goals or my purposes or, or just my own gratifications and like my own pleasures, my own desires, that there's always a point in which you transcend into an underworld of sorts. And that could just be nothing more than just being unfulfilled of just being like, Oh, I actually, I mean, yeah, I'm not actually who I want to be and I'm not actually happy right or i'm not actually content it didn't actually lead me to a place where i can accept my life with any level of peace and i do think that's a you know what do you want to use the language of hell or or just a hades an underworld right that is that place of suffering in which you come out of if you live your life well realizing i mean i think it's as simple as realizing that you have to ask the question of if it's not about me then what it's what is it about right Mm. um And I think that's one of the most important questions that we can get to. And that's one of the most important things that I think the hero's journey captures is that we're all going to, over the journey of our lives, have to ask that question at some point. And the heroes are the ones that come out with a, a different sense of the world. Um, and then you can talk about going back to the village and, and taking back what you've learned, you know, exiting the cave and going back to bring others out of the cave too, if you want to go into other ancient philosophy. But but yeah, I mean, there's just this moment where it, I think there's a turning point in our lives where we have tried living purely for ourselves and it didn't get us to where we wanted to go. And that crisis is nothing, nothing less than a journey into the underworld, right? Because it reorients the entire way we think about why we're here. So that was a little bit of a tangent. But yeah, I mean, I, I find that the hero's journey relatable and the stories that follow it because it's so easy to be like, yep, That's my life. I have also done that, right? Several years ago, I happened upon a YouTube video uh, that was titled Asshole Mario. It was a guy playing a version of the classic Nintendo game Super Mario Brothers from 1985, But the game levels had been modified or hacked, as the language in the community is, uh, considerably and rearranged into an incredibly, stupidly difficult version of the game. The whole point was that whatever sadistic person had put it together went to great lengths to make the gameplay as unfair as possible. In other words, to violate the most well-known rules of game design. The result was a game that was purposefully antagonistic towards the player. For just one example, in the original Mario, 
you generally are trying to jump over pits and on platforms in order to get to the end of the level without dying. In this version of the game, the designer would sometimes place invisible blocks in the space right over bottomless pits. Your first time playing the level, you are almost guaranteed to jump straight into the block, have your jump get interrupted, and fall down into the pit, forcing you to restart at the beginning of the level. Numerous tricks like this, along with insanely difficult design decisions, culminated together meant that the challenge of the game was merely to beat it. To even be able to get to the end of a single level became an enormous challenge. So that initial video I saw was basically using the level for comedy. It was a guy trying to beat the game along with his running commentary. As he got deeper and deeper into the excruciatingly difficult level, he got angrier and angrier, and it was really, really funny. That video was great, but I started watching similar and follow-up videos, and I gradually became aware that there was a whole sort of internet subculture that had sprung up around these sorts of Mario hacks, as they're called. The term for the genre, coming from the name of the first original hack, is Kaizo, which actually is Japanese for rearranged, but it's morphed to specifically mean these incredibly difficult versions of these classic Mario games. And as I began watching more and more of these games, and eventually playing them myself, I started to realize something kind of incredible about the people that designed these levels. I realized that they understood Mario the game better than its original creators. Over years and years of rearranging and re-sculpting the assets from those original Mario games, the obsessive fans began to use the game engine in ways that the original developers never would have even thought of. Items and character movement and platform interaction, all of these different parts of the original game that had played relatively straightforward roles were put to new, unique, and creative uses. Uses, once again, that the original designers never even imagined. And I think this is one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated and, and drawn to the idea of homage. Homage is a genre idea that can often be confused and might even overlap with parody, but I think there's a crucial difference. You see, parody is something that seeks principally to make fun of the genre or artwork that it's drawing inspiration from, from the source material. Homage is more of a love letter to a source material. It might make fun of that material, but it also understands it very deeply. It understands why that material worked. To put it another way, a straightforward parody is something that could be made by an outsider looking in on a popular culture. An homage is something that has to be made by people who are fans of the work, who get what made that work special in the first place. I think if we look at Galaxy Quest and we compare it to the Star Trek series that it is so clearly drawing from, we start to notice all these little ways that it works as an homage as well as a parody. You may often notice that scenes which start with jokes about the Star Trek show, uh, for example, demonstrating the potential body horror of a malfunctioning digitizer or energizer, you may notice that those scenes end with the same emotional beat as the very Star Trek shows that they're poking fun at. In that example, a character does get successfully rescued from a dangerous situation. More broadly, the whole movie kind of operates on this arc. 
as things keep going and our characters change and embrace and grow into the people that they had portrayed for so long, the movie makes fewer and fewer jokes at the expense of the source material and more and more just becomes the same kind of story that the source material told so often. Obviously, it never stops being a comedy, but it's as though the tone shifts subtly away from a Star Trek riff and starts to just become a Star Trek episode. And the reason I think I really appreciate this is because, like those Kaizo games I mentioned earlier, this reveals an understanding of, and I think even an affection for, the original material. And the reason that's important to me is because of that Patrick Stewart quote I started this episode with. Just to reread a small part of it, he said, No one laughed louder or longer in the cinema than I did, but the idea that the ship was saved and all of our heroes in that movie were saved simply by the fact that they were fans who did understand the scientific principles on which the ship worked was absolutely wonderful, and it was both funny and also touching in that it paid tribute to the dedication of these fans. Patrick Stewart famously did not think much of Star Trek when he first began playing what would become the fan-favorite character of Captain Jean-Luc Picard. So the story goes, he actually took the job assuming that the series wouldn't even last for very long. But over the ensuing seven seasons, he grew to enjoy the show, and he especially grew to appreciate the fan base and the community around it. He saw people drawn to and responding to the thing that he and others had worked so hard on. So when he can watch Galaxy Quest, a movie that on the surface seems to be making fun of that show, and walk away feeling appreciated by and proud of the movie, I think that tells you something special. And to further illustrate why, I actually think I can cite what is basically the flip side of this equation, the Big Bang Theory. Now, I want to be clear before I talk about this. I don't have any issue with you if you like or even if you love the show. Actually, my whole family are huge fans of it. And every now and then I've seen an episode and I thought it was perfectly good. It was a sitcom show. It was sitcom humor. But I do actually have a problem with it. I I think that the problem I have with it, which is a sentiment that I've seen shared by many other people, is that fundamentally it's making fun of its source material without any actual understanding of that material. In this case, that source material is culture. It's the culture of geeks and nerds. And from a certain perspective, what the show is doing is dressing down the culture, pointing and laughing. Again, that's not like a war crime or something, but I do think it's low-hanging fruit. I think it violates that rule about how comedians shouldn't punch down, shouldn't take advantage of easy targets, making a punchline out of them for just being different. Any subculture, from sports to academia to religions to fashions, can be painted to look very strange and and even ridiculous to people who are outside of it. And I guess that at some point in my life, I started to see that as just another thing that serves to divide us from each other. We can get into our little cliques and our little bubbles and watch or read or play something that makes a punchline out of people who like different things than us, and our separation from those people becomes sharpened as a result. I've talked about this incessantly on this podcast, 
But I think it's just important to remember that this kind of cultural stuff actually matters. It affects how you think and how you interact with other people. It affects what you believe another city or another country or just another kind of person is like. And the less it invites you into that person's world, and the more it asks you to just point and laugh from outside their world, the more unfairly it will color your opinion of that person. Galaxy Quest is the inverse of that example because it's inviting you to laugh with the fans of the source material. It's a movie that proves homage and parody can coexist. A work like Star Trek can be lampooned in a way that is funny and endearing for outsiders and insiders alike. And that's difficult and it's really, really awesome. And I think in a real way, it's more inclusive, more beneficial in some small way for how we interact with each other. Because I don't really want to walk around on a cultural high horse, pointing at things that look different from me and laughing. I'd rather be just a little more open to new ideas, to new experiences, to people who think and act differently than I do, who like and care about things that aren't the things I like and care about. I'd rather take part in an homage made by the fans than parody made by the outsiders. Yeah, man, I think that was spot on. I don't know, that was a really creative take. I really liked the concept of homage. Yeah, that was cool. That was really cool. I appreciate that. It's weird, too, because I, I didn't even know that that's where the essay was going to go. I had to get a little bit into it. I just knew I wanted to talk about homage and parody. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, one quick thing I, I had just by way of immediate follow-up, sort of just to, to expand what I'm talking about a little bit. I, I never use these exact words, but I think what I'm talking about is sort of the spirit with which something is approaching, you know, making fun of, of, of the material. I think about Big Bang Theory, and again, not not to not to harp on it. it. Again, I don't really care if you like it. It's fine. It's a great show. Um, <laughs> but when I think about that, when I think about that, in a way, it, it feels essentially mean spirited. I guess yeah, is the, is the yeah. point I'm trying to make. It, it's not, it, it, and I mean, it's a real thing. Again, if you know people who are within those cultures, they do actually look at that and they're like, "It's the punchline is these people are different and weird." And that is kind of mean-spirited. And I think it's just, again, like something that Galaxy Quest just proves, you don't have to do that to make fun of that material. You can do it in a way that brings people in and, and almost makes them even excited about the same things. So I guess that's just what I think is really cool. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or, or anything to go with that. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think what's funny is like that mindset is almost actively allergic to trying to understand. And that... I am deeply turned off by that. Like, yeah, um, it's like, it, it's not only it, let me put it this way. It doesn't only not understand the culture that it's trying to depict. It also does not want to understand, right? It just wants mm. to make a straw man and then poke fun at it. And yeah, I mean, I disagree with you. I, I, I think there's something mean spirited about that. I don't think, and, and it's not hard to do. I know we talked in a previous episode about, it's really easy to form social groups based on, hey, we all don't like the same thing. It's really hard to put out there the things that you affirm and the things that you like because people might reject it and to form relationships based on affirmations, not negations. And and I think that's 
at the center of kind of what you're talking about. I think um, what really struck me, though, like I, I can't come back to the word like true humility. Um, you know, I think mm, there, there yeah. are like these distortions of humility when we think about what it means to be humble. You know, on one hand, it's like we're I always love the, the pop star song. I'm I'm the most humble. I'm the number one on the humblest. Like there's this part of it where it becomes like a show where humility is something that you're like trying to do. That's actually the opposite of humility. But I also think humility is also just confused with like self-loathing, right? Where humility is looking at myself and being like, I'm a joke. Nothing about me is serious or good or worth affirming. Um, I'm the lowest of the low. And I don't think that's it either. I think humility is about right sizing ourselves, right? It's the ability to look at ourselves and be like, I do take this thing seriously or I do love this thing. And I don't think that's bad that I, I do that. But also there's a level of absurdity, absurdity in it that I can laugh at. Like it's the ability to laugh at yourself without hating yourself. Um, And I, I think that's what you're talking about, right? This movie gets that there are things in this culture that are funny that you can riff on that. I think anyone in the culture would be like, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. It's kind of absurd that we do that, (laughs) but it doesn't do that to hate it. It does that almost as an affectionate way of, I think, what all healthy love does, which is right sizes it. You know, there's good, there's yeah. bad, there's silly, there's serious, all wrapped up in this. So, yeah, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, I, 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 I really like that take. I, I never thought of the word humility as connected to it, but I think that's a perfect, a perfect way of describing that. That that's the, the attitude with which you have to approach something like this in order to make it inclusive in that way. And I think, again, you can look at the reverse where it's like if you approach something with a certain sense of pride, a certain sense of like, oh, well, I think this is all, you know, again, when I come at things from an outsider, I get to say, okay, well, I have an understanding of what this whole thing is like, and it's just kind of dumb and it's just kind of stupid. And and I think that's where that problem develops because now suddenly, uh, like like we said, I'm approaching it with a pride. I'm, I'm not trying to understand i think was a great thing you said as well um and even and even on another level too i think you know when i hear people make fun of a certain culture uh again we're we're, we're the the aspects we're just the people being different is the punchline and i, I keep zeroing in on that because that's the real metric i think yeah um where and so when i think about that you know one of the things that i always sort of as someone who has been a lifelong nerd and a lifelong appreciator of things that aren't always in the mainstream to a certain extent uh, i always get hung up on the fact that part of that pride with which people are doing that is because they are not acknowledging the ways that they have their own things that are also (laughs) ridiculous yeah yeah right and and i think again like i'm not saying that from a perspective of trying to make fun of them like but but you know there's football teams is a great example if you do not engage in that medium which happens to be a very popular medium but if you don't engage with it and look at it from the outside it's incredibly stupid yeah it's yeah, incredibly yeah. ridiculous and yeah. it has a multitude of things that you could be like these people are just weird but it's the more majority known things so those people in a sense get a pass for that and so i think that's part of where that humility is coming from as well is like sort of recognizing that all of us have things where if you're not already on the inside of it, it's pretty stupid. And yeah. I could easily make a punchline out of you just doing that. 
but again, I, I guess I'm just less interested in that as I've gotten older. I, I, I recognize, or I try to recognize, well, we all do that. So is, shouldn't we just have fun with the fact that we all have things that we're ridiculous about? Yeah. Shouldn't we just yeah. take that as a way to bring us closer together? Like, isn't that just more fun? Yeah. I, I don't know. No, it's a, it's a level of identification. It's funny, like choosing to identify with the person, even if the acts that we do are different, we can still see the same motivations, the same common humanity and why we are doing X, Y, or Z thing. Because I always think about this, like, you know, I played video games for most of my life. And then sometime in my mid twenties, you know, I, I stopped playing them and and it was really funny because a lot of my friends still did. And I just had this moment where I was like, man, I just don't have a lot of time. And I get more satisfaction out of watching movies, out of uh, watching a grown man throw a ball through a, a hole. And <laughs> uh, and yes, that is absurd, guys, if you if you have not actually objectively thought about sports. Um, and, I, and, and that's just where I'm going to put what limited time I have. And the, the shift was like, I felt kind of bad about it. And I felt like I, I found myself having to like explain to people, like, I don't think video games are stupid. I'm not, not playing them anymore. Cause I think they're childish, which I do think is like a common narrative. Like you grow out of it. It's like, I didn't grow out of it. I just decided to use my time differently on equally absurd things that I just get more satisfaction from. And it was kind sure. of that thing that I think a lot of people get to where it's like, just let people like what they like. If we all recognize yeah. that all of this is ridiculous and it's just about, do I enjoy doing this? Then I don't have to judge the act because it's different. I can just identify with the fact that we both like something absurd and we're both allowed to do that because it brings us satisfaction. And there's something so simple Absolutely. about that, but that was like a, that was like a realization in my mid twenties, right? It's like, that's okay. It's Absolutely. okay, right? <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. And, and you know, again, like, I feel like I brought this up during many episodes, but I, I mentioned it a little bit in the essay, but you know, I, I just think it's so important to remember that this does change how you look at the world. Absolutely. And, and I think any, even if it's a very small thing, anything that you can, that, that can make you more accepting of others, even if, even in very small ways, cause I get, we're not talking about big potatoes here, right? We're talking yeah. about, you know, someone says they're a Trekkie. Do you think immediately, oh, this person is probably antisocial and probably this. go down this whole, yeah, go down this whole laundry list in your head that you've been given in culture? Or do you think, hey, this person's in some way like me? I have things I'm, I'm obsessive about and I have things that I will talk at length about that other people wouldn't care. And I think the more that you can do the latter rather than the former, the more open you are to the world. And again, even if it's a small amount, why wouldn't I want to be even a small amount more open towards new experiences and people who think differently than me? I just, I just think that's valuable, even if it's just a little bit. Hey guys, thanks again so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. Mike and I each have a final question coming up in just a moment that we've prepared for the other. Before that, we do want to tell you that the next episode we're going to be doing is Casino Royale. The uh, 2006 James Bond uh, debut for Daniel Craig, as a matter of fact. 
And the movie that sort of changed, I guess, probably that entire series and also probably the action genre in general. I, I think we'll have a lot of interesting stuff and to say. And probably the world. And <laughs> changed the world. Nothing was ever the same after uh, Bond went blonde. After watching, after watching Daniel Craig get smashed in the nuts with a rope. That was really the turning point, I think, of the the 2000s. It was a beautiful moment. Uh, but before that, we do have our final question. Uh, Mike, I don't think mine is very funny, so I'm going to go first. I, I okay. wanted it to be funny, but I oh, couldn't I think of mine, anything. So I'm ready. Uh, cool. This is really actually just kind of an interesting question, I think. I'm just curious what your answer. Uh, both of us were a little nerdy in our own ways. I, I know that you were a big Warhammer 40k stand. Woo! Uh, blood for I the blood god. <laughs> I, I obviously had my own sort of things, but my question is, assessing different fandoms, like right now, you know, if you could go back in time and make yourself an early super fan of something, the way that Brendan was in this movie, what fandom would you choose and why? Where would you want to hit your hit your wagon to early oh, on? Man, that is a good question. To give you time to think, uh, I have both an answer and a counter answer. The yeah. the inverse of this question is I wish I hadn't become a Game of Thrones fans early on. Yeah, because sure. that that went downhill so badly that I genuinely do kind of regret being so into I was into the theories, I was into the books. I watched the show religiously. I was on all the boards and stuff, and that that one didn't pan out so hot, and I'm kind of sad about that. Uh, my answer for the first one's frankly a little cheeky. Uh, I'm sort of not taking the spirit of the question very well, because I think I wish I had become a fan early on of cryptocurrency, uh, <laughs> just because that could have been a really nice little payday there, right? Like yeah. If, you know, it's one of those things you look back and you're like, wow, if I bought $10 of Bitcoin in like 2005 or something, that would have been a big payday. So, you know, uh, again, not the spirit of the question. I recognize that. But uh, that was the answer that came to my mind. Do you have an answer? Do you have anything that comes to mind? Yeah, like I think for the first one, this is like, <laughs> I actually don't know if this is true. My first thought was like, I always really admire people who are super knowledgeable about like movies in like the 1940s and 50s and like essentially yeah. the foundations of film. I, I'm just, I love listening to them talk. I actually don't think I want to do that though. Cause I generally don't like those movies and I don't find them very interesting. You don't want to be you, you, in that universe, by the way, we'd be doing this podcast and doing like Tarkovsky yeah. And, doing, yeah. And, and all this stuff where it's like, yeah, no one knows these. Um, yeah. So I'm, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, though. I've, I, I look at those people with a little bit of envy, but also I'm like, no, nah, I don't know if I really would Absolutely. see that person. Absolutely. I think the one I regret the most is uh, getting on the ground floor of Alien as young as I did, because sure. Prometheus is a terrible movie, <laughs> and I hate it, and I hate that I I hate that I was so excited about it, and that I was... That you're invested in where that I, was going. I spent like two years from when they announced that Ridley Scott was like on this project uh, about humanity meeting their creator and finding out that it was the creator wanted to destroy them. And I was like, Oh, it's going to be like Blade Runner meets alien. And then it was just like a wet soggy fart in the vein of lost. <laughs> and I just, Oh, I just hated it. So I, I, yeah, I regret a lot. I regret a lot. So that's my answer. The alien universe, literally there were two good ones and they've been terrible ever since I've seen them all. 
that's the true fan though you, yeah. you still buy the ticket if it, let's say uh uh mr scott returns uh, we it gets announced and next year a new aliens coming out I'm are you in yeah so we're gonna see it yeah day, the, day this, one this is the definition of why that quote from that podcast i i brought up is wrong like don't give yeah. me what i think i want i think i want to watch another alien movie and i i don't i really don't i mean i don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, i love that uh okay what do you got yeah i'm really proud of this question um what activity from your life do you think aliens could observe and then create an entire society <laughs> around? And then how would you respond to discovering the manifestation of it? Oh, boy. That's a good question. Um, I, if you want me to answer it, I have one. I'm really excited about yeah, my answer, too. You go real quick and give me a second. I, I think I have one. but So but my, mine is uh, snarky as heck. I actually think it's really exciting, but... You know, I actually think as a pastor, an alien race hearing the teachings of Jesus and actually following them would be pretty cool because then we'd have real people who actually try to be Christians rather than just saying they are. Ooh, little snarky there. Little snarky. But a good answer. Uh, I don't know what this says about me, but I, I think that the, the first thing that came to mind was the time in the band. But... The funny part about that is that, like, from a, you know, from a personal sense, I think it was successful because it was a good journey for me. Yeah. But from a like, like world sense, it was clearly not a success. Um, and so I think it'd be kind of funny if if they observed just that and were like, "This is like what to do with your life is to work is to go to all these places and play music for people that ultimately doesn't mean anything." I yeah. think there's yeah. there's something funny about the idea of structuring a culture <laughs> around that. Um, the alternative would be, uh, and this is maybe meta meta analyzing the question a little bit too much, but there's a great version of this that's played straight in Ender's Game. Were you in Ender's yeah. Game? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. I yeah, like with that. the giant thing where the aliens like like read and like basically read into a subconscious this video game that he was obsessed with and created that as something for him to experience <laughs> later it makes sense in the fiction uh, go read the book if you haven't it's incredible but i kind of think so like i think about like skyrim i played skyrim quite a lot and i'm like i kind of would be I, it'd be super cool if like there was an alien species that just connected to that and like made the skyrim world real this elder scrolls world real. sure that yeah. sounds really, really fun. I wouldn't mind a movie where suddenly I'm like transported into like a D and D esque like fantasy universe that's been created for me, and I have to survive. I mean, I die just to put that out there. Like, I, I wouldn't do well in that universe, but that's a really fun idea. I like what if that. you were? What if you were translated into Mario? <laughs> uh, that'd be kind of that'd be a lot more existential because that's <laughs> less of a. Because, like, at least Skyrim is, like, meant to be sort of a real world. Like, it obviously falls apart in a lot of ways, but it, it kind of adheres to logic. That's just, like, not even... That's just abstractly different than our universe. Sure. Uh, so that'd be uh, probably kind of horrifying. This sounds like a... a uh, who, who, who wrote Waiting for Godot? It oh, sounds like yeah, that yeah. kind of play. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like you're stuck as an NPC in one of these worlds. I'm sure someone's done that now that I think about it. Uh, but man, if not, if not, we should get in on that, man. I this mean, I'm not gonna lie. It sounds like a Danny DeVito movie. 
Samuel but Beckett. It, this sounds like a Samuel Beckett plan. But it's... <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I Good questions. Good questions all around. Uh, boy. Well, thank you guys again for listening to this long, long episode about a 1999 movie that is frankly forgotten quite a lot. Uh, if you like the show, we do ask, you know, maybe just tell anyone you know who, who likes this kind of stuff. Just recommend it to them. We appreciate that. Uh, again, my name is Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet. Thank you Goodbye. guys for listening, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for the interrupt, by the way. I wasn't going to throw it to you. You, uh, well, you, to you change that every other episode. When you throw it to I me, wanna... I don't expect it. And then you don't throw it to me. This is ridiculous, John. I'm trying to keep you on your toes, frankly. I don't want you to have a side off. So I figure if I always either do or don't do it, you're, you never know whether I always look like an idiot. It's the worst. <laughs> That's sort of what I'm going for. Yeah. Hey, look at that. I also have like the stinger after the music, too. Yep, there it is. <laughs>